Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 225. We're caught in the middle of a maelstrom. This week we're discussing season 4, episode 13 of Angel, Salvage, as well as the broader themes and character development of Battlestar Galactica. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, starting with Angel this time. Um, I know I grumbled last time about having to wait on Buffy and do like these runs of like three Angel episodes in a row, but um, <laughs> but now we're in the I, thick of it, huh? But then I remembered. Okay, we did leave off at like a really good cliffhanger um last time of whatever the heck is going on with Cordy um Mm. so uh so good to kind of dive back in I want to start with Lila um mostly because that's a fairly little self-contained plot in this episode her little bits with Wesley and also it ended with her and it sort of begins with her this time so it feels sort of appropriate to sure kind of pick up there um interesting little um connection um with like the, you know the bsg projection here you know we get oh. um you know wesley kind of with his own little head character of he's you know he he volunteers to go dispose of the body so that it doesn't come back to life um i mean we know that Angelus didn't really kill Lila, but they don't know that, obviously. So they're assuming that Lila being the sort of, you know, out for number one type that she is, she could possibly have, you know, uh, made the deal and turned herself into a vampire. So Wesley's going to, you know, behead her and make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, And then he has these little conversations with, her you know um yeah so (laughs) i mean and i think it's i think it's fairly straightforwardly presented as his own inner voice speaking right like i don't think there's any real suggestion that there is anything else going on um and everything she says which she even points out is colored by the fact that it's really him projecting onto her Mm -hmm. um you know, his thoughts, his worries, his, you know, other things that he's sort of concerned with or worried about what she might think or not knowing what she might think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, but it's interesting. I feel like we don't really get that a ton in the Buffy verse of like pure psychological kind of manifestations like that. Like usually there's maybe a little bit of ambiguity of, is this really happening supernaturally or is this sort of just psychological? Whereas this I think is fairly straightforward that it's within Wesley's mind. It seems like you agree with that. I guess you could disagree if. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I mean, I think, I think when it's ambiguous, you could almost always like, come up with sort of like a supernatural in world 
reason for it. But like mm-hmm. this doesn't seem actually to me to be all that ambiguous. You know, like I, I kind of yeah. I think is what you're saying, right? Like that it's mm-hmm. that it's pretty clear that this is psychological. So I, I would agree with that for sure. Um yeah. al- although I mean as we've seen before, like just because you're dead, uh doesn't necessarily mean that we won't see you again. Um I don't think this is like her spirit or anything in that kind of way, like coming right. back. Like this this right. definitely seems to be she's dead and Wesley's sort of imagining a conversation as one does. I mean I can't say that I've never talked to people who weren't around before, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. you know. Especially when there's maybe a feeling of suddenness to the loss or unfinished nature to the loss. So yeah yeah um which i feel like even though um even though like he had kind of cut it off with her like i think we both kind of had the idea especially seeing her again in the previous episode like like they both maybe had the idea like yeah this relationship maybe isn't quite as over just because wesley says it is (laughs) right Mm -hmm. um which is kind of kind of what Lila brings up, right? Like, to get into some of, like, the specifics of what they talk about. Um, like, she kind of teases him, like, isn't this really what you wanted? Like, to have me completely, you know, utterly mm-hmm. finally out of the picture? You know, you can't get outer than this, she says. Um, and kind of teasing him, because, like, like we can clearly see that that's not what he wanted. Like, he didn't want her dead. Right. Like, maybe he didn't you know maybe he had made the decision that he didn't want to be with her and wanted to i don't know pursue fred i guess but that's got its own complications um there's there's certainly like i don't think like the finality of death was where he was going with that right um, for sure so right and i think that's i mean other than he's not like a cruel person who wishes like you know death on people lightly so there's just that part of it but also I think the other thing she brings up about um his kind of wanting to save her from herself and from her own impulses and her darkness and everything like for her sake but also I think that's very much the suggestion is that that's related to his own sort of redemption process project of like you know he can't save her and turn her to the good guys if she's dead um that kind of cuts off that you know and maybe he didn't necessarily realize that that was what he was working on but I think it seems that he was invested in that um and he like would bring that up of you're not as unfeeling and callous as you sort of pretend to be um so that seemed to be something he was trying to communicate to her but like we also know how much his own redemption means to him too to to get back in with the old crew um to have them not just get back in like to be part of the club but to have them understand 
where he was coming from and his point of view in what happened. So I feel like his, you know, I, a lot of times I feel like in stories, the genders are swapped, that it's usually the the woman trying to sort of save the bad boy, you know, like in the relationship. Mm -hmm. But here it's kind of the opposite. Like, I think, you know, the, the project of redeeming Lila a little bit maybe was related to Wesley's own feeling of wanting to turn back towards being part of the good guys. Sure. Um, and making up for mistakes that he'd made or this turn towards like darkness that he didn't necessarily mean to happen. Which I know we're not getting to her yet, but can we bring that up again when we talk about faith? Cause sure. like, cause like I, yeah, I, I, I feel like there's a connection almost in, in, to what you just said and face reaction to him of like the, mm -hmm. oh, you, you, you look good. <laughs> like, sure. You know, uh, Wesley's got some of the darkness that he didn't have when, well, Faith he was wasn't, around. yeah, he wasn't like the, the anti-hero that he is now when he last saw her, like he was very much, um, mm -hmm. still his kind of old, more, more bumbling, but you know, maybe not quite as bumbling as in the beginning. But um, sure, but still, even, like even when she sees him at that point, like she's still thinking of that earlier Wesley. Yes, absolutely. Well, and unambiguously, a good guy. Like right, even more so in Angel than in Buffy. Like in Buffy, he was like nominally on their side, but maybe more of an obstacle than anything else. Whereas, like for that first like part of Angel, he's like a hero, right? Like he's not only a more competent than he was, but he's like becoming more of a leader. Like he's becoming more of that, like leading sure. man kind of thing. And now it's, you know, however long couple seasons since she's seen him, he's been through this whole ringer. Um, and they have stuff in common now. Like that's very much her story is the anti-hero type of, she's kind of with the good guys but also flirts with the dark side and is very much on the fence as to where she's going to be at any given moment well and right so like i said i didn't want to necessarily talk about faith yet but i definitely sure. want to like maybe bring that in a little bit more when we get to her um right. yeah so, but so back to like the lila redemption um whatever like so here's one thing i would ask does this feel like lila mm -hmm. or does it feel like a wesley interpretation of lila right and and well, we i mean we both agree that it is a wesley interpretation of lila right. but I, the question of the uh, the accuracy of that i i guess um, that's what i'm asking yeah like like does this feel like authentic lila or does this does this feel like authentic Wesley trying to interpret what he thinks Lila says? Or is it, or, or I guess the alternative to that would be, is it, is it Wesley putting his own guilt into Lila's voice and mm -hmm. words? Um, 
and we can bring I've, into we we can do the crit fit think of thing of what do what we think the, the writer's intent is although i'm yeah. not i'm not entirely convinced it matters here but yeah and and i'll say why maybe after once i hear your question or your I mean, response i i do think that my impression and i think the intent based on what we just said is that this is wesley's projection um but um but i also don't know that what lila says feels untrue to her either um i think it's possible that sure. his projection of her is fairly accurate as to what she might um you know what she might have said i mean the way that she kind of needles and provokes him and you know like that's the kind of way that she would interact with him before is sort of when he wouldn't want to talk about things about how he was feeling or what he was thinking she would be the one saying well clearly you're into fred or clearly you want to do this or you know pointing out those dark sides that he didn't want to acknowledge and everything um so if anything, it feels maybe more clear, like it feels like more of a change in Wesley. Um, that like, if he's openly acknowledging these things to himself, maybe that's more of a difference. Whereas like this kind of, I don't know if it's fully 100% honest, but it, like that kind of like provocative thing is more Lila's, you know, way of, speaking to him mm. so it didn't feel like the 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 dialogue didn't feel inauthentic coming from her i don't think it's written in a way that's supposed to make you feel like this isn't what lila would say um yeah. you know and like it she doesn't confirm or deny anything of you know, he says, you don't love me. You couldn't. She says, well, we'll never know now, will we? Like, she doesn't actually claim to make a definitive statement one way or the other there. Mm. You know, the, the the statement is it's too late to know for sure. But Wesley's at least considering the possibility that she might have felt something. Yeah, sure. Well, and so, I mean, so like the sentence like this, right? For all, for all your supposed darkness edge of the razor mystique there was always a small part of you that thought you could pull me back from the brink of my evil evil ways like i could see lila saying that and i could see wesley denying that mm -hmm. like no no i never really thought that but lila as a manifestation of wesley's subconscious like that's that's a pretty like you that's a hard to refute statement right like that's a mm -hmm. because it's it's Wesley saying as Lila there was always a small part of himself that thought he could bring her mm -hmm. back from the brink of her evil evil ways and so like it's just like even just in that one line like the character like you're getting his characterization of Lila mm -hmm. of being on the brink of evil evil ways but also the characterization of himself as that 
rescuer, you know, uh, you know, pulling, pulling her back and, and saving her, helping her find redemption, but also like the mask of darkness for all your supposed darkness, edge of the razor mm -hmm. mystique. That's very similar to I'm a rogue demon hunter. Like, <laughs> like, like, I mean, and I don't mean to say that like, like he hasn't been actually dark. Cause like, mm -hmm. I think we are in, in many ways, very far from that cloak of i mean you know like like well, like, like like riding a biker as faith says like like it's it's far from it in practice but not in in principle well like, that's what i'm saying now like, he's actually embodying the thing that he was sort of play acting before and, and that's kind of where i was maybe stumbling around to, to get to with that is is I definitely think like if if anything it's more the the changes in emphasis or in quality excuse me not like not in not in actual substance right like I mean maybe maybe he's you know he he's ha he's a little more experienced he's he's you know dabbled in some betrayal uh you know so to speak but you know kind of <laughs> kind of what he was trying to portray, you know, initially with his motorcycle and his, you know, leather gear and all of that. Um, you know, we talked about in the beginning how he, like, he wasn't a completely ineffective fighter or whatever, like, kind of, yes, he bumbled around, but in, in the moments where he needed to, he always kind of came through. And, mm -hmm. and like, he's still kind of doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's just messier now and it's you know a little more experience and and scars under his belt so to speak or mm -hmm. under his chin but um well and nobody took that seriously before like sure. his image of of his projected darkness was only ever i think a joke to the people around him um whereas now that he's actually done the dabbling well i guess in, you know i think people um that's changed I, their perception of him which i think has changed his outward like demeanor around other sure. people i mean faith like notices right away like you're different but again this is lila as a manifestation of his consciousness saying this so what's intriguing right. to me is that she says your supposed darkness right your edge of the razor mystique like those are terms that are like supposed and mystique those are terms that are that imply that things are not what they appear to be and so well and, and does he still feel well this justified is, for what he did is this you a, know is, is this imposter syndrome right sure. is this is this a sense of i'm actually not this dark guy who everyone thinks I've become. Mm -hmm. I'm still the rogue demon hunter playing a part. Mm -hmm. And that's 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 what sort of intrigues me about some of the, the ways that she talks is that not to say that I think that these aren't the types of things Lila might say. She totally mm -hmm. might say them. But I feel like with that added twist of it being a manifestation of his consciousness, like you have to look at it as like, is are these 
ways that he sees himself mm -hmm. as someone who's supposedly dark, but maybe not actually as dark as mm -hmm. he seems. Someone who has this mystique, but it's mystique, and so not maybe actually authentic in some way. Um, right. Someone who thinks he can pull back Lila from the from her evil, evil ways, or the brink of her evil, evil. I don't know if there's a difference there, but like can pull her back, but is actually incapable of doing so. And so, like, I think those are the kind of things that, like, I, I was kind of looking at in, mm -hmm. in, in hearing the conversation and, and kind of reading through some of those quotes this time around. Um, so, uh, so this, uh, this episode was written by David Cherry. And um, one of the things that intrigued me is um, in, in an interview that he did, uh, some long time ago. I don't have a date off the top of my head. I'm not seeing a date here. Um, he says that this was his first scene writing for Lila and Wesley. And so that's interesting to me too, mm -hmm. because I don't, I guess I'm, I'm not sure. Like I almost, I, I almost do feel like it probably is intentional for him to kind of be doing it, you know, in the, in those sort of ways that we're describing and talking about and keeping in mind that it's Lila in Wesley's head, but it's also, it's also hard to know. Cause like he says that he, he was proud of what he came up with, but, but they was worried about it and that it was the most difficult part of the episode for him because hmm. he, he didn't, he had never written for the two characters before and just didn't know quite how to, how to, make what they were doing mesh i mean I, I like it i like this scene i i think mm -hmm. i think it ends up being a good job i guess you know this is the problem with crit fic though is you know you can never quite be sure, sure of like if what winds up as the final product is what was intended and and again like how not much it matters but i just thought that was interesting that sure. that's that particular scene was um what he he felt anyway that uh, was the hardest for him and um, right. that he had never written for those two characters together before. Well, and it's only two characters in, in a certain light and in, in another light, it's one character, you know, having, so maybe yeah, it's yeah. okay. Maybe it's okay that he hadn't done that because there should be something maybe a little off uh, or something that it doesn't quite fit about her words or their interaction. Um, so yeah. And I mean, I think Wesley's been pretty consistent on that point that he doesn't necessarily see what he did as not that he doesn't see the, the, you know, the, the problems in it of his actions or take any responsibility for what happened, but it's not like he's come back to the group completely contrite and saying, I totally screwed that up. I was wrong. I should never have done that. You guys were right to be angry. Please take me back. Like, that's not his attitude. Yeah. Like, he comes back saying, like, 
this seemed like the right thing to do. And why can't anybody understand that? And in the meantime, I'm not waiting for you guys to, you know, take me back. He went off and kept fighting the good fight on his own or with other allies or with other like, you know, helper dudes or whatever. Like he kept doing his thing. So I can, I could see that fitting with your thing of he doesn't see himself as the traitor. He doesn't see himself as this dark anti-hero that he's mm. kind of being branded as. I think he's projecting that image a bit, maybe for the simple reason of feeling so outcast by the group. And so just the like depression of that situation projects this kind of, you know, bearded, like serious kind of glum thing which is very different than how he used to be but maybe that's not so much him trying to be like this dark edgy dude as much as it's his unhappiness with the way things have gone mm. um and maybe well, he like genuinely doesn't really understand why people don't understand that you know <laughs> don't get where he's coming from and and how much of it is a uh defense mechanism Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know that I have much to add to that at this point. Okay. Um, All right. Well, oh, I thought we were going to talk about Faith next, but not quite. Let's... Well, no, that's why I was hesitant to bring her in when I did. But Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, there's more to say about her. But I think the parallels with Wesley are good, and the fact that they connect more and even get along a little bit like the last time like you oh know, you mean as she, opposed to her trying to kill him kind of trying to kill him <laughs> yes him? yeah so they have a bit of a history um and but that's like completely changed by her perception of him in this episode and the fact that he's willing to go to her you know so it's not all on her side like he clearly has a huge part in repairing the damage that was done between their relationship. Um, so anyway, all right. I did first want to talk about, um, you've, you've labeled our bullet point. How do you solve a problem like Angelus? Um, because before they go to faith, everybody kind of weighs in with their, you know, gives their two cents about, you know, Angelus is, loose and you know what are we gonna do he's just killed one of our i don't know if lila was an ally but she was a person that we knew um, i mean a potential so this, one at this point at least potentially I mean, like... could have been so yeah the stakes are sort of getting higher um um especially Wesley, sorry i was just gonna say especially okay. if if like head lila uh you know is right in saying, like now we'll never know. Like, like maybe she Wesley could have been could on the brink of yeah, yeah, the brink of her evil, evil ways, and so right. maybe, maybe she would. I mean, it's not like you know, uh, uh, it's not like we haven't seen other quote evil people, you know, do good things and you know mm -hmm. become valuable contributors to society. Um, <laughs> 
like 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 Andrew seems to be coming in the Buffy sure. things, you know. Yeah. Um, maybe not quite the same level of evil as Lila. Um, right. despite his or or the same level of contribution yet <laughs> right well right but to each but it's all relative you know to those given much much is expected and vice yeah. versa <laughs> um that's a good point so uh just just as a for instance i guess not to like throw shade at andrew he's like you know i love andrew just as a is not even like the the right show we shouldn't be um, dissing him from not his episode, you know. Sure. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Okay. But, uh, yeah, anyway. So just just to say that Lila was a potentially a future ally, if, if they're really, like, if, if, we, if that relationship could have borne out and, yeah. you know. Or just in the short term, utilizing her or, own self-interest yeah, to survive. Enemy, you know, like, enemy of my a, an ally in the sense of, how are we just going to live through the next like night? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, so actually th that brings up one thing I do want to say about Wesley before we get too far away from that. Yeah. Um, so. Sorry. I just had it in my head and, and was going to um, say it. And then I forgot what I was going to say. So never mind. Let's move on. How do you solve a problem like Mandela? And you can totally sing um, it um, if you want. I'm just throwing that out there. I'm good. Um, well, actually, I, we have Wesley first. Let's let's come back to him, just because he leads into the next section. Um, sure. And and his and his as the apparently still kind of leader. Um, his oh, you know, opinion sort of rules the day. That oh, jogged my memory, yes. which is kind of what I was going to say, right? So, like, let's not forget that he came back under the auspices of Crisis Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. He's not back part as part of, like, Angel Investigation. Yes. He, he comes back because it rained fire and, you know, the beast started kicking people's butts. It's all hands on deck so, situation. So this yeah. is like, okay, my throat is slit and my friends all abandoned me, but like we're gonna set that aside for a few minutes while mm -hmm. we resolve this stuff. So like, which you know, by the time we get to the end of the episode, that seems to be resolved. So like, there's still the question of like, where does Wesley exactly right. stand? And and I want as we talk through each of these characters, I want to talk. Yes, about how they solve a problem like Angelus, but also like their relationship to each other and each other, including Wesley. Like, because yeah. I think I think there's some interesting developments here mm -hmm. with, with a couple of them, as yeah. far as Wesley and as far as whether or not he's the boss, particularly yeah. with the first two people we're we're about to talk about. Um, well, I'm tempted to just flip them. Um, yeah. And let's, because the biggest one is gun, right? That's the big shift yes. is, um, is boss or no, he's right when he says we have to stay together till we know what to do. Like huge difference than the tunes that gun has been singing. I mean, for the last season, but the last few episodes in particular, um, yeah, that is, that's quite a shift. 
Um, and I don't know whether to just chalk it up to, like you said, we're in apocalypse crisis mode of like, even with the apocalypse raining down around them, Gunn has not wanted to just follow Wesley's orders um, and give him <clears throat> that leadership role back without any question. Um, both for reasons of not trusting him and then even more so with the stuff that's happened with Fred. So you, well, Oh, sorry. To ask it a different way than I was just about to, um, to what do you attribute that? I don't know that I have an answer. I mean, I'm trying to remember if, if we get any hint of this shift in the previous episode, um, I don't think so. Well, uh, and I, 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 so I then maybe I'll proffer a suggestion. Okay. Um, I'm open to one. He just was with Wesley when they stumbled across Lila's body. And do you mm-hmm. think that, like, mm-hmm. like maybe there's a sense there of like. It's hard to say because, like, we don't get a ton of, like, visual evidence or, and mm-hmm. certainly not any verbal evidence of this. So this is totally, I, this is, like, fanon for me, right? Of just, yeah, like, if right. I'm, if I'm trying to, like, consolidate these ideas, you know, and, and the character reactions. To me, it's, it's gun, it's, it's gun with the heart, right? Like, it's, you know, if he's sort of. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't want to say like the emotional one, but he's he's not the brainy one, right? Mm-hmm. So like, we're not, like we're not going to accuse Gunn of sitting around thinking about things too much. Like, if I take that down the road, then then to me that's maybe him reacting to Wesley's reaction of losing Lila, mm-hmm. and so it becomes whatever whatever he might feel about Wesley's, you know, intentions towards Fred, mm-hmm. uh, which there's those, they certainly exist. Like maybe there's a moment of compassion or, or at least a lessening of hostility towards Wesley in seeing and understanding what he has to do with Lila's body. That's right. just a, just a thought but like i mean mm-hmm. you know they they come across angel you know feeding on lila and and wesley yeah. you know sort of takes the the hit and has, says i'll do what needs to be done and yeah i mm-hmm. I, I just i wonder if maybe we can attribute it to that that like gun having you know done things for Fred that he's not proud of and or whatever like maybe there's maybe there's a bit of not camaraderie and like I I don't want to like imply that like Wesley and Gunn are going to be like hand in hand buddy buddy at this point but like that just that would seem to me like the clearest sort of way like if we're doing like the Gordian knot thing like the clearest way to sort of cut through to like what he might be feeling in that moment as far as uh, being slightly more willing to like 
let yeah. Wesley have some slack at this point. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, well, and, and it shows, like, it humanizes Wesley again, but in a way that isn't related to Fred. Like, it kind of shows mm-hmm. his feeling for other people that doesn't trigger all of guns or his like jealousy kind of buttons, you know? Um, It doesn't trigger them. It doesn't trigger him. It's like, yeah, he can kind of be allowed to see the, you know, the pain that Wesley goes through without feeling like threatened by it. Um, So that is, that's a possibility. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that. I couldn't necessarily see any one reason why Gunn would kind of back him up that way, um, other than the pure survival mode. Um, sure. Well, so, and that might but, be too, yeah. But, um, you know, and not having like a, a, a better plan or whatever, but I think from like a character point of view, the what you're suggesting probably is a bit it's a little nicer um so yeah so yeah that's kind of his position is he backs up um he backs up wesley which is definitely a big shift Mm. um connor does not shift in case he like kind of like doubles down on his like obstinacy kind of thing of you know, uh, they don't really have, they have even less control over him than they did before because Angel's not around. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to go too far with it because it's, it doesn't really go anywhere in this episode. But um, in particular, I was interested in his kind of anti-magic stance. Yeah. You know, of of he's now kind of, everything he's seen in his life. And then in particular, how this team of people has handled crisis situations Mm. and the way that things that they've done have worked out. He has kind of concluded that magic is just garbage. Um, It never works. You guys think this is going to solve your problems and you do a spell. And then every time it, either makes it worse or we're right back where we started. Um, so that's, that's where he's at. And so his solution is angel Angelus has got to go. And, and I'm the destroyer. I'm the one to do it. And this has gone on for too long. Um, do you, do you think that his, do you think that he makes that decision because he's seen like, you know, he's done sort of this clinical scientific assessment of magic and is saying it doesn't work. Or do you think it's more like he just wants to kill Angelus? And so he's sure. going to complain about anything that's not killing Angelus. Right. Like any yeah. activity that does not include killing Angelus, he's just going to be upset about no, no matter what it is. Well, I, I believe that he believes believes what he's saying, that he thinks that he's making a true statement based on observation, whether like now is that an actual clinical assessment of anything like 
No. Um, like, I don't think that's a rational kind of studied conclusion that he's come to. Um, but I believe that he is sort of annoyed at all of these magic plans that aren't solving the problems in the way that he wants them to be solved. Um, sure. Yeah. And I think, like, he's itching to kill Angelus while Angelus is sort of out there sort of begging to be killed. Well, like, this is, well, like, a very easy it. way yeah. to... Exactly, to solve all of his problems of... Yeah, he can... He has his excuse to just go take care of this right now. Um, so I think that's part of the rush that he... You know, the, the hurry that he feels. Um, so, yeah. Um... Lorne and Fred are both more of the, like, let's batten down the hatches and defend kind of frame of mind rather than going on the offensive. Fred kind of suggests just, like, barricading themselves in and Lorne, like, sets up the sanctuary spell again. Because mm -hmm. um, that's worked so well. Yeah. <laughs> which uh, did which, wonders for his bar. Which, like, on the one hand, like, makes Connor kind of right. Like, magic hasn't really worked out that well for all of us. Well, that and that's why I'm saying I don't know that Connor's 100% like, wrong, or he's certainly not lying about his own beliefs. Like, I think magic is certainly fallible, and well, I certainly think that Connor's experience of it is probably been a negative one, but, like, I, yeah. I guess my question there, though, was more like, like, do you think it's, do you think it's the magic that he's actually objecting to, or the, we're not going out and killing Angelus right now that he's objecting? Oh yeah, no, that's that's goal number one. Yeah, is to, to yeah like, to go out and hunt him down. Like yeah. if 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 going out and killing Angelus wasn't like an alternative activity they could be partaking in, do you think he'd really care about magic one way or the other at that point? Like it seems to me like. Probably not. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean. Or if, if there was not like, cause he wasn't complaining about magic when it was like, when there was opportunity to like, actually try to kill Angelus, right? Like, or Angel even. Sure. Like there's like, he used the interdimensional portal to come track down his father. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I mean, that's pretty magical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, but I think the portals and the magic have been at the source of a lot of terrible things that have happened to him. So I could see him having a bias against those things. Um, but I don't think that's his main priority. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I do like when Lauren tries to whack him with a candlestick. Sure. Um, Lauren in the hotel lobby with a candlestick. It's a, yeah, it's a good way to test out if it's working or not. Um, so, all right. Circling back to Wesley, um, 
he, for all of his supposed darkness, right, he comes up with the most, you know, kind of both proactive, but also like humane plan that they have, you know, which is, we're gonna, we need our champion, and we're gonna save Angel, like, so he's totally going, you know, positive hero mode. Um, yeah. And they're, so they're gonna go capture him, and they're not gonna kill him. Um, and he goes and gets somebody he thinks he can rely on to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Faith being somebody who has the skill, hopefully, of any of them to take Angel down, but also has the personal investment in not killing him. Right. Um, so she kind of ticks both of those boxes. Um, yeah. And so that's what he does. And she's in jail and has been there since what season did we see her last? Season two? I want two? To, I want to say. Okay. Okay. Possibly one? I don't, I don't know. No, I think it was two. But I could be wrong about that. Um, I think sure it was. I think up. it was season two. Um. Yeah, in in jail, doing her time. We knew at the time, and it's reinforced here that she could leave whenever she wants. Um. So she is, you know, clearly. Oh no! It, it's late season one. Oh, is it? Okay. Yep. Oh, wow. So that's like three years later. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. And she hasn't been in Buffy since then either. So this is a long time since Faith has been around. Um, so it, 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 we're reminded again that she could leave any time, right? Like, it's like no problem to just fight off a couple guards and punch through the glass and leave, you know, whenever she's ready. So again, this prison sentence is voluntary, right? Like this is her penance for all the things that she's done. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a self imprisonment until, you know, either until she feels like she's, paid her dues or just indefinitely just like this is where i belong and i'm just gonna stay here until something you know more important comes along yes yeah which it you know three years later it finally does um and she doesn't hesitate you know all wesley needs to say is that angelus is back and it's step away from the glass right um and wesley does pretty quickly too Yes. Yeah. And then like dodges the punches that are thrown and just lets her yep. she, like he doesn't even like help with the guards. He sort of just lets her do it. And then she throws them like out like a three story window. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, which like she, it, it, she gets into her uh, prison yard scuffle. So it's not like she's out of shape. Right. Right. Um, there's enough going on that she can keep her skills honed. Um, yeah. Although it is clear that this isn't just a normal, like, uh, you know, like, shiv incident. Um, there's 
an assassin that's after her, right? Mm-hmm. Like this jeweled knife is clearly not something that somebody's just smuggled in, you know. Right. For like this is like somebody sent in this killer after her. Yeah. So, I mean, like, is it clear to you what that is? Like, they don't bring it up in the episode. No, they don't. I mean, I don't see why it wouldn't be related to the whole Beast's Master plot. Um, Whether that's really Cordy or whatever is going on with that. I mean, just because... If that's the subject of like that's the villain currently like i guess it could be something else but they haven't really brought up any other reasons why somebody's out to kill fate it, so um, uh okay interesting maybe i won't say anything right now then okay um or i can't think of any if they have um well wait a minute though Now that you're saying that, it's making me think harder. <laughs> is that is this like crossover of what's going on in Buffy? Like, is this the like we're sending um, bringers and various people after all the slayers in the world to take them out? Maybe is it? So I mean, Deb. That's I mean. So that's another possibility that I can think of. Uh. Deb, the inmate. So one, Faith knows her, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's not like right. This, this isn't, isn't like rando, like, yeah. You know, prison person. But like, also, like, very quickly, um, as she's like being hauled away or whatever, Deb says, "I needed the money." So like, clearly, this is a hired hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And yes, so I, I will say, since you mentioned it, uh, the jeweled knife is similar, very similar blade to the ones that the Breakers have. Gotcha. Um, I don't remember, like, they don't obviously say anything in this episode. I don't remember if that comes up explicitly at some mm-hmm. point or not, or if it's just kind of left there to kind of, like, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, like, it's not, like, too intrusive on the plot, right? Like, right. I mean, it's, it, yes, technically a crossover, but it's not like, like, we're not, like, Buffy's yeah. coming to, you know, L.A. again kind of thing. No, it's a little Easter egg for people who are watching both shows. Right. Um, um, the other thing- And it's the same with, you know, An- Angelus calling Dawn, like- mm. Like, there's just that little moment of, hey, is your sister there? Okay, it's not her. Like, you don't, they don't dwell on it. It's just a little reminder that, oh, yeah, these things are happening simultaneously. Sure. Um, The other thing that I'll just mention about the actress who plays Deb um, is that she played an assassin in Buffy in the What's My Line episodes. There were, Mm -hmm. there were two, there was a two part uh, storyline, if you remember. Um, Mm -hmm. And, in that episode, the character she plays, um, so the characters have different names. In in the What's My Line, her her name is Patrice. And um but it's like uncredited. Like there's no 
you wouldn't know that. Like, just, mm-hmm. you know, watching it around. So there's, like, there's sort of, like, a fandom thing of, like, oh, is this, like, the same person? Like, she just, like, hires herself out to, like, different evil groups to as, like, an assassin kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, wouldn't be a problem, like, that would be fine, like, to have different names in that instance, too. Like, it could still be the same person, you know, just called different things. So, I, you know, not a huge thing, too, but, like, there's also, like, again, there's not, there's nothing to refute the idea that it could be the same person, but also, like, mm-hmm. no evidence that it actually is, other than it happens to be the same actor. Right, you know, right. Um, sure. As we've seen has happened other times, you know, across... Uh, yeah the two shows but anyway just figured i'd mention that that was for the um oh what's the name the order of tanaka something Mm. like that i don't know if you remember that one of those various evil groups of vampires that we've run across from time to time okay (laughs) um that's funny Okay. All right. Well, good. I'm glad you asked that because I think I was so focused on this episode. I wasn't thinking about. Yeah. And maybe I, maybe I shouldn't have asked him. Maybe I should have just kept quiet. Well, I mean, no, it's fine. Cause like you said, it's never necessarily fully (laughs) up again. I don't remember if it is or isn't. Yeah. But I think it is. I, I mean, I like, like, I don't think, I don't think that it's, a bringer hit yeah is like the you know that i don't think that's the focus of the scene per se like mm-hmm. that's not the point of the scene the point is that like no. faith is in prison and like holding her own and kind of yeah also being a loner kind of in a way right mm-hmm. like she's just kind of off by herself and gets attacked but then like everyone knows including like like the guard even is like yeah, like who who would who would be dumb enough to attack you? Like yeah, even... the guard knows better than to get involved in that. <laughs> so um, anyway, yeah. So all right, well, that kind of transitions into like Faith's relationship with the rest of the team when she comes back because, um, mm. yeah, uh, I don't. Again, I don't. I kind of want to leave Cordy to the end, but um, I think one of the reasons that it, it is maybe against you know what my original thought was kind of suggested that it's not Cordy behind the hit is um she doesn't seem to necessarily uh foresee this as a as a move of Wesley's like you know she's definitely I mean obviously antagonistic um but it, it seems to throw a wrench like there's a sense of oh I didn't see that coming or this could actually cause problems um, for whatever the plan is. So, you know, faith coming is definitely not foreseen by whatever the bad guys are. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and also like locationally, like the prison, they, it mentioned specifically is in Northern California. So like right, so they're like, in the sunshine and yeah. Well, but northern not Cal- like, I mean, California is a long state, right? It's, I mean, we don't know where, but LA is in Southern California, so like, right, right. This is potentially quite a ways away that 
that Wesley has to drive to mm-hmm. to get to her. So, like, I think it, there definitely is a out of sight, out of mind. Like you said, like Cordy doesn't foresee this as, mm-hmm. which, which brings into question like some of the predictive abilities that she's displayed, right? Like, like the visions and that kind of stuff. Like, well, and it's hard to speculate because we don't know what's going on or what she is like if it's not really cordy then does she have any predictive abilities at all well that's what i'm saying like yeah like earlier in the season when we get like right you know cordy comes back and there's like visions of the beast like that calls into question like anything that she says she's seeing right 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 is it all just manipulative yeah. Um, all right, hold on. I don't want to talk about Cordy quite yet. Um, <laughs> all right. Faith, we keep doing Faith this. The rest I don't want to talk I mean, about so-and-so, but we're going to talk about so-and-so. I, I mean, I feel like we can kind of lump most of the team together in the sense that, I mean, Cordy aside, um, Faith is kind of pretty well accepted by the team. Like, mm. you know, Gunn certainly is impressed with her. Um you know, both, like, you know, her skills, but also just, like, her kind of no-nonsense, like, tell-it-like-it-is, you know, demeanor and everything. Um, I mean, clearly we talked about she and Wesley are way more in sync than they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, at any point in their relationship, they're very yeah, tumultuous relationship. Um, and... Which I always forget that he was her watcher. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why that detail doesn't stick in my brain a lot. I always have to kind of remind, be reminded of that. Um, sure. So, yeah. Um, and Connor seems like not into her, but he is, right? Like maybe Certainly he's at maybe first he's he seems that way. Yeah, he's like frustrated by being bossed around and and you know like so they butt heads a bit but like pretty quickly i think you get a little hint of a smile of like maybe it's 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 a challenge but it's also kind of an exciting challenge um and well and like by the end it's open like admiration like you know over the course of the episode he kind of drops you know, what starts out as, like, his frustration, and and by the end, she's, like, the coolest thing. Um, Yeah, well, like, and you get that, like, kind of, like, the juvenile, you know, question of, like, you know, well, why are Slayers always girls? Like, and, and, like, you know, the faith sort of typical retort, well, maybe we're just better at it, right? Like, yeah, and, but, yeah, like, like, you can see him, like, trying to poke poke holes kind of in her authority or her abilities or whatever. And, but like, yeah, like, you know, either because she's able to like best him or mm-hmm. just cause like, he's not able to really kind of maintain his machismo or whatever you want to call that. Like, mm-hmm. like he definitely comes around by the end. Um, well, and, and, you know, in that kind of adolescent way, 
as much as he rebels against rules, what he actually needs is guidelines. You know, like he actually does respond to them when they're really enforced. Like, you know, rather than going off and, you know, responding really poorly, she completely puts him in his place in the kind of like, you know, if it comes down to you or Angelus, you haven't shown me a thing to make me want to take your side. Like, yeah. He could totally, completely go off the handle with that, but he leaves because she kind of kicks him out. And then even after that, he's still kind of raving about how great she is. Yeah. Um, well, because of so, the, because of the results, yeah. right? Sure. It, I mean, right? She backs up her. She's not empty threats. Right. She backs it up with which actual results which if you're going back to kind of his complaints about the magic and stuff like that's what it is right it's that it's ineffective and it's mm-hmm. not doing what needs to be done mm-hmm. um right also right. and so he doesn't like it but like when he's given a real criticism and then shown a better way of doing something he is capable of receiving that on some level like he's not completely petulant about it which of course is interesting because we know what really happened which is that faith Mm -hmm. isn't the one who's responsible for the sun coming back it's actually angelus and Mm -hmm. and that faith is actually in a pretty serious spot right there of Mm -hmm. being hurt and uh you know the the episode kind of ends with her laying in the sunlight but knowing at some point you know the sun's gonna go down (laughs) like yeah yeah uh yeah i mean we can sort of maybe guess what happens next but we don't actually know yet at this point so Mm -hmm. um yeah the other thing i would say about connor too is like just even as like we were kind of talking about wesley before of like this sort of impression of yourself um it's clear that he thinks of himself as like a killer and all of this, you know, the destroyer, like I'm the destroyer, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But like faith gives him that, you know, I'm a murderer. Mm -hmm. Are you (laughs) like, like, how do you answer that? Like she literally was just in prison for murdering people. Mm -hmm. And like he's gonna go toe to toe with her, where she's like, "I've killed people." Like, are you mm-hmm. prepared to take that step? And I mean, he hasn't really has has he killed a person that we know of? Not that I know of. I'm trying to think, like, like even with like all the Holt stuff, we're like. Holtz was definitely more willing to do that kind of thing, but I don't think Connor ever did. I mean, he put Angel on the bottom of the ocean. But that's Angel. But that's not, yes, right. Not like, he didn't, I don't think he's killed a human being um, that I can think of. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, and I I don't think so. So, anyway, all that to say... Well, and just the pure fact of she's better than he is. Like, she can oh. physically push him around. Like, he's not a terrible fighter, but he's not as unbeatable as he thinks he is. For sure. And 
Yeah, I I was just trying. Like I was just looking at the the parallel there between him and um, Wesley specifically, though, of just just mm-hmm. that idea of like right. who you really are versus sort of who you see yourself as. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But anyway, um. All right, well, we started to touch on Angelus and the Beast, so why don't we continue with that? Um, sure. There's not a ton with Angelus. I mean, there's some significant stuff that happens, but, um, you know, earlier in the episode, he's sort of tracking down the Beast again. Um, he's kind of using his, mm-hmm. you know, network of demons, and he starts collecting these, like, vampire minions to help him and stand guard for him and like harmony's minion yes exactly um gotta have minions if you're gonna be a super villain um and um you know tries to get some information from the beast about who's really in charge here um and you know, obviously, I mean, he's not really going to take orders from anybody, but certainly not from the Beast. So right. starting to kind of tease this question of who's the master, who's really pulling the strings. Um, which I'm going to keep kicking that can down the road. Let's stick with Angelus and the Beast. So, <laughs> Sure. At the end, he lures Faith to where the beast is kind of lurking, right? In this, like, warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, sort of traps her into a confrontation where it looks like he's just going to let the beast kill her. Um, and then he jumps in and takes out the beast himself. Yeah. Um, kind, of which, un- kind of unexpected. Yeah, with, like, a piece of himself, right? That's the... The phrase or something. The the piece um, of the beast, yeah. Yeah. And um Yeah, so lifting the, the long night and you know, the whole spell that's been over LA for the last several episodes, however long it's been. Mm-hmm. Um I mean obviously the 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 whoever its master is, is still out there. So it's not the complete end of the big bad of the season or anything, but like still like a significant, uh, you know, a significant departure. It's definitely Um, a win for the angel team. It sure is. Even even if angel himself isn't sort of around to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Right. Right. And he's going to just take care of Faith himself, presumably. Um, and like, you know, she doesn't end up saving them in the way that Connor thinks she does, but she does like save herself, you know, by mere inches by knocking out the window, right? So she is still kind of, you know, doing the best that she can and, you know. Oh yeah, no. Kind I mean, of escaping at the last minute. Certainly, quick thinking on her part, um, you know, to sort of save herself from Angelus, because you know that's what's coming next, right? Is mm-hmm. is the the Slayer Angelus fight, which he acknowledges, like 
we've actually never met before, right? Like mm-hmm. Faith has never met Angelus. Um, yeah. So. Right. And just another, I mean, we've talked about this recently, but another reminder of Angelus as this kind of freelancer agent of chaos and his own whim. Like, yes. he'll yeah, just yeah, yeah. sort of take out the beast because it suits him or because, because it's he fun. feels or like it. Or he just wants to see what happens. Like, Cause, sure. Because you sure. get that sense of like when he's like, oh, so the sun really did come back. Like, I just, you know, I just thought that was a fantasy of Angel. <laughs> like, right. Like, right. I didn't actually think that was going to happen. So it's, it's right. just kind of like that. Yeah. Like, let's just let's just do this and see what where the chaos takes us. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. And. But, you know, the, the other interesting thing, I think, here is that it's actually, though, a fulfillment of the whole reason they bring Angelus back in the first place, mm-hmm. which was to destroy the beast. Whether, yeah, he actually did what they wanted him to do. Whether, whether through, I, I mean, I think they were intending it to be like, tell us how to do it. <laughs> right, they would get information from him. Um, right. But, you know. Yeah. It, it 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 serves the purpose um whether or not you know there's other ramifications you know remains to be seen but mm-hmm. uh it, it does at least achieve like they by taking angel's soul away from him they achieve what they set out to achieve mm-hmm. yeah um or do they no, they do. Well, that that they they do, but there's also now we have this other layer of yeah. the beast, which I think they kind of like. I mean, I don't think they thought the beast was like, you know, the biggest bad in the entire universe or anything. But still, I don't know that we, the audience, know more than the good guys do at this point about sure. that the fact that the beast is serving somebody and following these orders well um right i mean it's angelus who tells them like you guys are idiots if you think the beast is the one running the show mm-hmm. and that that his actions as coordinated things that that's just not who the beast is right like the beast isn't someone who plans things out normally right. speaking so like it's mm-hmm. gotta be taking orders from someone yeah. Um, but yeah, they don't have any more idea now than they did a week ago as to who that mm-hmm. might be. Mm-hmm. And in a way, we don't either because, you know, I, the more I sit with it, the more my guess is that Cordy, this whole season hasn't been Cordy. Mm. Like that. Um, when she comes back from being a higher power, that's the beginning of a of a, some sort of imposter. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I don't know who that might be or do, what that might be. Do you mean. want me to say something um, on that or no? No, not necessarily. <laughs> that's me. That's me just guessing. Yeah. Um, I uh, I think we talked about this last time. It's certainly 
retcons her relationship with Connor in interesting ways. Um, And then, so we have this added layer of a pregnancy now too, um, which even Connor is quite weirded out by, (laughs) you know, like he certainly doesn't look ready for something like that. Um, And yeah, like the way that she kind of notices his like, uh, attraction to faith and then kind of chooses that moment to kind of say you know sit down I have some news for you you know we're pregnant and this means we're soulmates forever like <laughs> yeah, that, you know that, that it, it definitely way. makes me feel like the whole thing with them this season was like a seduction mm-hmm. like this is like you know she's using him for something you know that you know the 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 baby is whatever it is and this is all part of like a a plan that obviously we don't know yet um Hmm. and she's like way more pregnant than she should be so there's that too sure like this is like a super overnight pregnancy um which cordy has had before this is true yeah. Not the first time she's woken up pregnant. Yep. <laughs> like, very pregnant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's a significant line coupled with that of, you know, give mama some sugar. Like, all right. Right. What, with whatever this is, what role, what's the importance of the mother here? Like, you know, I mean, obviously she's, going to give birth to something but like why is this why is that an important part of Mm. what she is um i don't that's a rhetorical question i don't know the answer um yeah and she like makes out with the beast so right well so I mean, there's a question of veracity of is, is, you know, Connor, the baby daddy, like, sure. Could, could she be lying about that? Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, there's so many lies and half truths, like it might be hard to suss them all out, but yeah, um, especially if, as you suspect, or at least think is is possible um, that she hasn't been Cordy since she returned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Okay. Well, that's the only guesses I have for now. Unless there's anything else in her scenes that you need to point out in terms of significant things to notice or no i mean you get all the you get like the sly glances you get i mean the the way that they play up the the anger at faith's return Mm -hmm. is really interesting just from a dual 
uh, meaning sort of perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, definitely. Right. Cause you can buy it, you can buy it as the, or you can see that the characters buy it as her character, but then it obviously has other motivations. And and even faith is like, you have every right to be angry. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's true, but also like, that's actually not why she's angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> from I mean, you know, we we can surmise anyway from uh, mm-hmm. you know seeing Cordy later in the episode, you know, doing things that make us uncomfortable with who yeah. with with who she actually is or or isn't in that mm-hmm. case. No, I don't. I don't have anything really significant to bring up beyond beyond that at this point. Yep. All right. So, um, where else? What else? I mean, kind of, kind of. That's that's it at this point, right? Like, I mean. We end with the revelation, the pregnancy revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's just a matter of seeing where that goes. You know, the beast is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but what? what's, yeah, like where does the threat come from next? Because like, it would be silly to think that there won't be a next threat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so it's shifting over to whatever Cordy is. And then I think um, Angel or Angelus being the sort of wild card of that, of if, as she says, he'll come around when he, when she when he knows what her plan is or if he continues to, you know, defy that and Mm. like do they become in conflict or is it going to be that angelus teams up with whatever this other big bad is um sure and and meanwhile they're still working on capturing him and getting his soul back in so oh right um, that little detail that that little snag so um (laughs) yeah well with that in mind we should probably um, talk about Battlestar Galactica so BSG yeah um, here we we're are at the end yeah <laughs> yeah we're at the end um, uh, yeah I, so I mean okay we're gonna kind of wrap in our season four discussion and, and our end of series discussion. And um, when we were talking about this, we were kind of like, well, should we do like a separate series? But I like, we kind of both came to the conclusion. I think that it, it would be hard to like talk about the end of season four without also talking about the series as a whole. And it didn't seem to make sense to kind of have two separate discussions. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're going to kind of do both like starting with the one going into the other. Um, right. 
so like let's let's start with kind of our standard like okay end of the season well and so well the other thing is like we realize like oh hey we haven't actually done like a series recap yet which seems bizarre because this is like our fourth series that we've talked about right and going on five years or something <laughs> right. of doing this like surely we must have finished something by now <laughs> no we haven't and don't call me surely right um but like the yeah it is weird because we've we've done like for doctor who we've done like the era recaps mm. right we've done like the davies era and um yeah. we'll be doing the moffat era shortly um more shortly than maybe we'd even like but uh you know we've not done an actual like series recap so that this we're like maybe blazing new ground here like i don't know if this mm-hmm. will be you know kind of in our plan i think we still have series recaps separate for buffy and angel at the end of those but mm-hmm. anyway like it just seemed weird to do that this time just because i feel like the way that the series wraps up it's it's really hard to not talk mm-hmm. about like both the season four stuff because a lot of season four is dealing with the rest of the series mm-hmm. and especially at the end um right and we're going to talk about the plan and we had talked about splicing one of the recaps with that but i think this feels we scrapped that. And I think this feels a little more natural that the plan can be for better or worse. And, you know, we'll see how um, good we end up thinking it is. I think it can be treated like the um, spinoff that it is um, and <laughs> not part people, of, yeah. 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 And not part of the series proper. Um, so wanted to kind of, you know, maybe start with the season and then go into broader series concerns, but there's definitely going to be crossover and yeah, discussion that goes both directions. Um, So really quickly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but wanted to go through our traditional awards and, and, you know, recap acclaim. Um, uh, You know, so remembering that season four was split into two parts over two years. you know, they kind of were treated almost like many separate seasons, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So in 2008, um, season four, part part one, which is everything from like, I I guess Razor wasn't really included in this award stuff. We kind of talked about Razor's own reception, but um, everything from the start of the season up through Revelations is part one. Um, And that was, uh, you know, in t- in time's top 10 tv series of the year at number eight um revelations itself was time's uh number six episode of the year so you know strong showing for that episode and then uh the season was included in lists with the chicago tribune tv guide television without pity san francisco chronicle and some other places um, and it had a nomination for People's Choice Award for favorite sci-fi show. Um, so definitely had some good reception. And um, same with part two. It was uh, the following year in 2009. It was number five on Time's top 10 series. Um, so even climbed a little bit that year. 
um, and had some other awards for the actors. Um, Edward almost Trisha Helfer and Katie Sackhoff had Saturn and Scream awards and um, also had some Emmy nominations, um, a, a directing nomination, which was nice. Doesn't often get that. Um, the others were the more typical technical awards like right. editing and sound mix and visual effects. It did win an Emmy for sound editing. Mm -hmm. um, and all of those are for Daybreak. So it's that kind of like well, thing well, where you, you, you crown the, you, you nominate the finale as the kind of stand in for all the good work done, you know, for the series and the season which, and everything. Which is an interesting one to win when we, when we get to later in talking about the um, mission statement and how like space is silent. So like the sound, <laughs> yeah. the sound editing becomes sound important. editing, which, yeah. which I say kind of jokingly, but actually, you know, editing for silence is certainly something that sure. would be, you know, if well done would, would be done in a good way. Um, the, the last Jedi has shown us this recently. Yes. Um, silence but, is but as important punctuation as through else. silence. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then, um, okay. So in that vein, you know, a, a VES award for visual effects. Um, here's some, a, a little bit fancier ones. Um, TV Critics Association Award for Program of the Year. So that's a little, you know, artsier. For a genre, um, film, you know, show. For a, for a genre show, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you brought this up. Um, there was actually an uptick in ratings. Um, the finale was the highest rated in... Uh, it's time slot for both network and cable. So again, for a, uh, a cable show with a smaller viewership and a genre cable show at that, um, that's quite impressive. Um, again, that's for the finale. Um, and then as a whole, season four kind of had an increase in uh, viewership. It, it, you know, made up some of the ground it had lost as inevitably happens um, over the years. Um, and then Daybreak kind of got back up into, uh, you know, being the most watched episode of this series since in, you know, some of the ones in the first season. So, um, you know, people, I think that, you know, indicates a certain proof of interest in the audience of wanting to catch the finale as an event, you know, wanting to see how the thing wraps up, see, see it live, be part of the like water cooler discussion of how the show is going to end and everything. Um, and then the last one, I actually just bumped down to the bottom because I think it'll lead us into our episode discussions. Um, and I think I meant to talk about this at the time, but I don't think I did. Um, TV Guide in 2009 redid a list they'd done earlier from 1997 of the top 100 US episodes of all time. So scrolling through it, the way they kind of did it is there's no show that has more than one episode. So like they're ordered by like, you know, Seinfeld, the one about nothing or whatever, but like, you know, well, they're all about nothing, but you right, know, right, right. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the contest or whatever is like, you know, so like there's no two, there's only a single episode for any given show. And then they have them ordered that way. Um, uh, I, I want to point out that, um, once more with feeling is number 14 and uh i will remember you from angel is number 78 
Um, Ooh, but so, so these are, you know, U.S. shows, a hundred of them, and then ordered by, you know, the favorite episode. And um, of all things, TV Guide put Blood on the Scales as number 43 of their, you know, hundred U.S. episodes of all time. So not only kind of giving BSG a spot in the strong kind of center of the list, but of all the episodes, that was the one that they singled out. Um, and um, that has to be, happens to be one of the episodes that um, I picked for my favorite. I, I paired it with The Oath because they're kind of a two-parter, but um, mm. just, you know, you have the whole series to choose from. You know, maybe there's a little bit of recency bias in there of the list was done in 2009, so they could have had that one sort of fresh in their mind. But also I think there is a tendency sometimes in those best of lists to go back to the beginning um, mm -hmm. to maybe our rose tinted memories of when the show was at its best, whenever like, you know, if people thought like, oh, the glory days of season one or whatever. So it's kind of interesting to me that they chose one that had just, you know, premiered within the last year. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Um, so I kind of bumped that to the bottom just so, you know, we can kind of lead that into our episode discussion. Um, sure. So, which means I get to go. So we actually couldn't remember who gets to go first, but actually the way it kind of works out, it works good because um, the one that I picked for my favorite is A Disquiet Follows My Soul, which is our Ron Moore episode. This right. season all right? all run more all the time yeah. writing and directing right um yeah and so i'll be honest so like i always i always struggle with like specific sometimes but we we kind of were when we were trying to you know not step on each other's toes and picking the episodes like oh well did you want this episode or were, <laughs> was i gonna pick this up um except for that time that you just flat out stole once more a feeling from me and didn't even like look back anyway so uh <laughs> yeah like so with this like one of the reasons i picked it is because i do feel like there's in a very arc heavy season like this one seemed to have a more a more <laughs> lessing theme um, in sort of the ideas of fatherhood and mm -hmm. um, sort of responsibility and um, maybe like whether it whether it's embracing or shirking that responsibility like like not to necessarily say that like everyone like is a good father and like completely does what they need to do at the end of this episode but like you know kind of has that um you know feeling of like understanding what your place is and like the order of uh mm. you know protecting and and seeing for like those in your care but then also like kind of like almost like a cycle of life sort of thing as well um not to get all lion kingy on you but like <laughs> um another thing that sort of 
you know strikes me about this episode um is that in in, in context of the later episodes um a disquiet follows my soul like there's very so like there's the disquiet in the following but it's also like the quiet and the proceeding of what's mm. to come mm. um so like the, the calm before the storm the, a little bit all very kind of literally in a way um yeah the that there's this is really like the last breath before the lead up into you know the climax and finale of the season so mm-hmm. um i think just from that perspective it's it's a really inter- it, it's really interesting to revisit it mm-hmm. in the context of what comes after um yeah. cuz even like even for me like like getting here where we're where we're coming into and i mean it's it's early in the second half of the season but it's definitely like like i kind of feel like I mean, I don't want to get into the following episodes, but like, I mean, you can lead us there and I'll pick up or whatever, but yeah, yeah. Just like, well, I didn't want to give away like where we were going or anything, but anyway, <laughs> um, like I didn't, you know, I, 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 I remembered things as I was watching this series, but like at this point of a disquiet follows my soul, like, you realize, like, over the course of, like, what is it, one, two, three, four, like, six episodes, and then Daybreak is, like, the three-part finale, mm-hmm. like, a lot happens, like, in a very short amount of time, mm-hmm. not just, like, with, like, plots and, like, war and, you know, takeovers and, you know, whatever, but, like, major characters getting killed off and... Mm-hmm you know, like shakeups happening, um, and including in that, like the ship as a major character getting killed off kind of. Um, yeah. And just like, like huge, like big thing. And so this becomes an episode of like reflection on like who, you know, sort of the focus characters are and, and the, primary focus characters here being Adama, Tyrol, um, Gaeta a bit, and Baltar, like, mm-hmm. not all of them, well, and even Zarek, like, a bit. Um, not all of them, like, in the fatherhood aspect, necessarily, um, but mm-hmm. at least three of them, at least Adama, Tyrol, and Zarek, I would say, as, like, the father figures, so to speak, in a way. Um, well, and, and Gaeta more as the son looking to father figures uh, as like, so even he works in the theme, right, but, right. but not as the parent, as well, like the, the child and, who's, you know, looking for role models and that sort of thing. And I mean, Ty as like a literal, like new father. Mm-hmm. Right. It starts with like the sonogram, right, right? With the sonogram, you get Baltar's speech about children and fatherhood and mm-hmm. um, all of that. So, I mean, yeah, like even even where like the characters themselves aren't well, I am I Ty is a father figure, but I don't equate him with being a father figure for some reason. Right. You know what I mean? Like he's certainly not a role model. <laughs> well, and 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 also because like I feel like in some ways throughout the entire series, he's really Adama's kid. In sure. some ways, more than Lee at times. <laughs> like, um, yeah, 
not like I say that funny, but like even insofar as like Ty calls Adama the old man, right? Yeah. So like, yes, there's Ty looking at the sonogram and like biologically capable of you know procreation, procreation, <laughs> uh, but like not necessarily that doesn't necessarily equate with being a father um although it, it is leading into ellen's not back yet but it's leading into the the reincorporation of her and the ties as the, these kind of you know yeah um parents of their own brand of Cylon to come and everything. So it, it, I think it's starting to hint in that direction, even if it's not fully explicit yet. Yeah. No. I, um, and you've and you've got Rosalind in there too with her complete. This is like her at the peak of her. Um, I'm gonna live my life for me for the moment phase where she's. Sure. This is the farthest she goes to completely abandoning her sort of civic responsibilities. Right. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, that. so that's obviously a very strong theme. I think it sets up then, because there is that, I, like, I don't, I wonder, like, like, again, like, revisiting this after, like, seeing what happens later, like, like, it's hard to say that Adama doesn't continue being a father, you know, for the fleet and, and like finishing out his promise to lead them to Earth, even though it's not like, well, I mean, they do get to Earth and then like, you know, to the new Earth, basically. Yes. That right. like he dubbed, he later dubbed it like, like I did what I set out to do. I led you to Earth because this is Earth because that's what I'm calling it. <laughs> like, right by the <laughs> by the strict letter of of this you know the law rather than which, you know like i i checked that box what else do you want from me <laughs> which like i can't say that i haven't done myself as a father to my kids to say like no no you just misunderstood what the promise was yeah what i'm saying now actually is fulfillment of what i said i do you just clearly didn't understand what I said I was going to do. But also, like, I remember as a kid, like, definitely upon reflection, there were times when my own dad did that sort of thing of, like, you know he totally intended to do something else. But just by sheer force of will and statement, like, says, no, no, this is what I had in mind all along. Yeah. Um, a very father thing to do. But sure. so so there's that aspect of it. But also like I, I think there's like it's important to sort of see like what the failed father stuff is that goes on here. And I feel like that's like that's Tyrrell in a way. Mm. Um because I think not that like Like, I think this is kind of a way to, like, get Tyrrell out of being a father. By, like, mm. even though, like, it sort of has him embracing fatherhood at the end, in a way. Even, like, though it's not his kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
there's definitely an aspect of like okay we're gonna like rid Tyrrell of this um responsibility but then like mm -hmm. kind of still make him seem like a good guy but then like mm -hmm. oh yeah we just kind of never really mentioned nick i mean like maybe once or right. twice you know nikki comes up in the rest of the series but it like like where's nikki when they actually are on earth like right. the new earth tyrell's right. going off by himself to like die in the irish highlands or wherever like well, they threw his damn dialysis machine in the sun. Like. <laughs> yeah, like if there's one. What happens to Nikki's a good question. Like if there. Well, and I honestly didn't even think about that, even though I was thinking about like what happens to Nikki. Like I was thinking more just like, like presumably he's with Hot Dog somewhere. Right. You have to. You have to assume that. But yeah, yeah like I didn't even think about like maybe maybe they did take some basic medical equipment, but they kind of implies that they don't, right? Like that, they kind of imply that like that sort of thing is a creature comfort, which they, so the, the idea of like a pre, a prehistoric like colonization effort in which they're like, not only are they like trying to integrate themselves with these, whatever, Neanderthal or whatever, you know, species these are, but like, they're splitting themselves up and going off like, yeah, that's not like for someone who needs like their blood to be filtered every like so often. You don't expect that like Nikki himself is going to be much of a father because uh, no. he's probably not going to live long enough. Yeah. Um, as are probably some others who might be even have a better fighting chance of potentially living longer, but are, you know, presumably going to die of disease or fighting mm -hmm. with the natives or whatever um right so yeah so i i do feel like even though this is about fatherhood it's not this episode isn't necessarily about like good fatherhood or or the sure. right way to be a father per se i think um just like a lot of other aspects of the series it's about the complexities and and some of that includes failure and um mm -hmm. insecurity and and not necessarily knowing like putting on the face of knowing what you're doing without necessarily always knowing what you're doing. Um, yeah. And I think like, it is very much meditations on a theme. I think that really struck me going through it again, like a knowing I was preparing for, to, for a podcast discussion. So watching it really closely, but also rewatching it, like having seen, like you said, seeing what comes later, you can see how they're setting up, all the things they want to establish for the, the kind of crazy last run of the show. And I think that episode does a really good job of that. And I think for, you know, Ron Moore as a writer and then as a debut director, it's very well integrated. Like mm -hmm. the way that scenes are cut from one to the other and how it can be about different things, but they always have these common ideas sort of, at the center of it, it's really very carefully um, integrated and and finely tuned to kind of get in all the things that he wants to do, but it, but very like subtly, like it's a very quiet kind of episode, which I think kind of speaks to your calm before the storm mm -hmm. aspect. Um, 
like, you know, before the the big action interruption of, of the mutiny arc and then getting into the last five or six episodes where it's a, you know, pure plot getting us through to the end of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I don't want to go through like point by point or anything, but that, that those sort of things are what sort of draw me to the episode. Um, I do want the one thing I do want to sort of say too, like, you know, about Baltar is like, you get like the um, condemnation, right. Of, uh, you know what sort of father abandons his own children to despair and loneliness and then like later he like d- you know abandons his cult and like is like no no i'm gonna go with like these guys and like try to save you know hera from the cylons right. and you you guys will be good like go do what you need to do um well and even before that when the mutiny erupts he's out of there you know so yeah, yeah, yeah. like there's right. even a few times like even in the last five or six episodes, there's at least two times where he abandons his, you know, yeah. abandons his flock. Yeah. Um, Setting up some of yeah. those iron, ironical uh, moments. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, that, that would, that's just sort of one moment that kind of like something that you're maybe not thinking about, like how it plays out down the line, but then, after viewing, mm-hmm. you know, later episodes, you go back to that and be like, hmm, yeah. What's that again, Baltar, about abandoning your flock? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway. So, all that said, that's my that's my pick. Um, yeah. For, for oh. the favorite season four episode. So I'm following it up right up with the next episodes. So picking the 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 mutiny two-parter, the oath and blood on the scales. Um and kind of for similar reasons of I think it's it is the much more um emotive and action you know oriented expression of all those themes that you just set up. Like all the things that are quietly festering and percolating in a disquiet follows my soul are you know come to light in you know in the mutiny and and i think even earlier than that like i think that kind of from the you know i guess like from revelations from when they find the wasteland that is earth Mm. you know um and and through through the mutiny i think is kind of this like frack earth period of like <laughs> it it's a really interesting midway point between the the kind of quest that is the first half of the season to like find the source of starbucks calling um which leads them to this dead end but it's before the kind of new quest that starts up again later about rescuing hera so it's like in between these two poles where they actually do have some sort of direction and purpose you have this middle section where they just have nothing and kind of end up you know fighting and eating each other in response to that like they have nowhere to go and so it just all kind of turns on itself um Mm. which is 
a really dark section of the show, but I find it really kind of interesting. And along with New Caprica, like I would put those two together as the the arcs that kind of do the best of showing that complexity that the show could do at times where that thing we've brought up again, where everybody's wrong and everybody's right, you know, where Mm -hmm. everybody's wrong and yet you can understand all of their points of view, you know, every, the, you know, the reasons that everybody's doing what they're doing make sense given what they've been through in their own particular way or given who they are as a person or how they're changing. Um, Sure. So I think it's a really good kind of expression of that. And, you know, rewatching them in more detail, these episodes in particular, I, they have more plot problems than I noticed the first time going through. Like, I think we did our fair share of nitpicking of like, mm-hmm. how can Hot Dog not hit a lock target? And how can, um, you know, how do, how can Ty and Adama escape so easily from their guards? Like, it definitely has problems but you know about that but you know what i i kind of don't care because just like on a pure like emotional level it works really well like and you know there are those little niggling plot mechanics i think that you could quibble with but i think for me the episodes are kind of strong enough on their own that those don't really drag it down too much mm. um and yeah and i've said before i think gato's arc is for me my favorite in the show like taking a character who can plausibly in the first season or two like have a scene where, with d where she makes a tiny little rebellious gesture and he says you know, if you're upset, we should really go through the proper channels. Mm-hmm. To take that character plausibly to this ending, I think it's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Where you're not feeling at the end like, this is a different person, he's acting out of character. Like, you know, I feel like the, each step along the way of the the disappointments with Baltar, the experiences on New Caprica, the treatment by the circle, all these things get him to the point where you say, I absolutely understand why he would feel like this is the move and how it can be completely obviously wrong and reprehensible. And yet you, for me also kind of still true to the admirable core of the character. And that I believe he's doing it for what he thinks are noble reasons. Um, and how those two things don't necessarily contradict each other, but it depends on kind of what point of view you're looking from. So anyway, I think it's a a good, uh, a very fitting end. It's not necessarily a happy ending, but like it's a satisfying kind of resolution. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. I don't know that I have much to add to that. I mean, you know, Obviously, we get two of like the major character deaths that I just referenced. Um, yeah, and I mean, and sort of the culmination then, if like Zarek is a father figure and just quiet follows my soul, then this this is his failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and and like I would take that to go even further back than just like 
to that previous episode, but like, you know, back to when we first meet him as like a political dissident who like has a huge following and is kind of a intellectual, you know, father to like even people like Lee, you know, and mm-hmm. and yeah. others who are sort of like marginalized, like like ultimately this is a I don't know if condemnation is right quite the word, but at least like uh showing that like his his methods even mm-hmm. even to the extent that he has valid you know gripes and claims mm-hmm. and whatever like his methods and his willingness to employ sort of like terrorist uh mm-hmm. you know activities and and all of that um just shows that and you know ultimately they're ineffectual not not just because like he loses and gets killed but like mm-hmm. also because like it pulls the everything he does is to pull apart the fleet mm-hmm. whereas like i feel like not that adama's always like the most um gregarious guy you know mm-hmm. and like you know that sort of sense but like you do get a sense that throughout the series the large majority of what he and Roslyn and sort of those who are kind of like in their broadly in their camp, although like mm-hmm. that shifts here and there um, as to who that exactly that is like, like everything they do is an attempt to keep the fleet together. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's bad ways like by force and you know, whatever. Um, right. Sometimes it's, you know, a little more, uh, acceptably like democratic, I I guess is how I could put it, you know, but like most of what they're trying to do is to like keep everyone together because like as a pack, we're better suited to like defend ourselves against the, you know, predators kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas, um, with with Geta and Zarek and and Zarek the whole time and then Geta sort of through um you know proselytization I guess mm-hmm. um you know this becomes like his thing is always like descent descent pull away get your faction to like right secede and then like hope a lot of people follow you um so I, I just from a methodology like like if like obviously those are very broad you know strokes to paint kind of with but i feel like again like if it's not exactly condemnation it it at least like shows the ineffectiveness of that method of like in this in this universe where we've got um you you know where the people who kind of go off by themselves are the ones who end up getting picked off by the Cylons mm. and or who die because they can't like you know there's not like a sort of critical mass to keep everyone alive um right it's it's the one you know it, the the better move is the ones where you're trying to keep the people together rather than pull them apart um right right 
Yeah. I had something to say and then it completely just left my brain. <laughs> sure. I, how many times do I do that? So no, no judgments <laughs> here. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, any other sort of thoughts to wrap up kind of the favorite episodes part here? Um, um, and so, no, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. I, I was just gonna say like, uh, what do you think about the fact that, we didn't pick anything from the first. Like, is this just like, I just don't remember the first half of the season enough? Or or do you think it really is just, there's so much arc-heavy stuff going on? Like, the second half is really where a lot of the culmination hits. And, like, kind mm -hmm. of the first half is a lot of chess moving and, mm -hmm. you know, setting up of the later stuff. Um, yeah, it probably has to be some of that, of... Part two is where you're going to get payoff right. for these, you know, characters. If they're being killed off, you're getting the final culmination of their character arcs or, you know, paying off the mythology and all the mysteries that you've set up and everything. So I think by me, by its nature, that's more satisfying. Um, I do think there are some good, I, I think the first half gets better as it goes along. I think it starts out a little scattered of much like Starbuck and the Demetrius you're, you're kind of wondering you know where this might be going um but um I think once they start to kind of get some momentum and direction it gets good like um you know I I, I think kind of maybe starting around like faith like where the alliance with the Cylons is starting to be a a thing it gets a little bit more compelling um the hub jane essenson's episode i think is really good um so i would kind of say maybe it's for me like across the season the middle is the strongest i think the beginning the very beginning and the very end maybe as a as a byproduct of their ambition mm. maybe get a little bit more scattered um, and don't quite have the command of all of their parts that, you know, they seem to maybe in the middle of the season, um, which I think is fine and probably very difficult to, I mean, how many series finales do you know that land every single aspect of their story? Like it you know, it's a moving target and that's a very difficult thing. So I think you get points for difficulty and everything, but, um, but I do think that kind of central section that's kind of revolving around the human Cylon Alliance and the discovery of the wasted earth is maybe a bit stronger in terms of like actual mm. quality. But yeah, with and with an edge to seize to to part two for getting to play with the results rather than the setup, um, mm -hmm. which probably makes part one a little bit less fun to watch. Yeah, sure. I mean, do you disagree? Do you think? Like, is one half particularly better or worse than the other, or um, 
no, I think I think you're right. Like the payoff um, is probably the biggest reason um, why the second half feels like it's got some better episodes and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I hadn't thought about it like in the way that you put it, where like the middle episodes are kind of like maybe a little tighter, a little. Not like less ambitious per se. Like I don't, I don't know if I'd say they're less ambitious in kind of whatever. But like, yeah, like I certainly have my criticisms of the finale, even if they're mm-hmm. only sort of right at the end of the finale where mm-hmm. I criticize it. But like, yeah, I feel like I feel like they're definitely more focused, um, and so maybe just maybe that's just it. Like maybe that's just we're in mm-hmm. we're in the thick of it we've got a story to tell and we're focused on doing that yeah. um and i like really dark juicy stuff where things are falling apart that's always interesting <laughs> so sure you well, know yeah like the, and- the, de- the depressing first like four or five episodes of the second half of season four are pretty hard to beat for just sheer like you know melodrama (laughs) and maybe because like i almost feel like because sometimes a great nose room is really good too with d and everything so um like not that there's nothing like exciting or climactic that happens in episodes after the mutiny but kind of like after blood on the scales kind of like the rest of the season is like denouement to the series right like like you yeah. yeah you get like okay the big like you know Hera gets taken and the confrontation you know in daybreak and stuff but that's almost like that's almost like a, a like a smaller climactic moment than than mm-hmm. i think the two part you know mutiny really is mm-hmm. um interesting and so I don't know, like maybe, maybe part, maybe that's, I'm just thinking of this off the cuff. So totally feel free to disagree with that or whatever. But like, just thinking like through like, like from a climax of the series, I almost feel like it's not the last three part episode that, that it, that has that feel to me. It, mm-hmm. it kind of that mutiny is it. And it's kind of like, once you get that, and that's resolved mm-hmm. you all it's almost like okay like like we are still one fleet including now like some of these cylons who are with us mm-hmm. and um from there it just becomes uh a matter of like okay now what are we gonna do with this like final group of cylons yeah. that's still kind of around that's a really good point, and I never really thought about it. That I it, I literally did not till a minute ago either. So like, <laughs> there there are moments of you know Adama puts up his token resistance to every new piece of Cylon technology and goo that comes onto his uh, ship. So they, but there's never really a sense again that the unity of the fleet is at stake after the mutiny, and I think that's true. Like, it's it, we might quibble about how we're going to get along, or we might disagree about where we should go, but 
there's no question that they're going to go together. Um, which, yeah, I guess that does kind of make it feel like that's the maybe the main resolution of the series. Like, the the survival, I guess, like, the final, final resolution is the survival of humanity. But, like, really, it's the survival oh, of the fleet. Oh. That's, like, the characters we know are the fleet. Like, how right. are they going to survive? And that's the that's what's tested in the mutiny, and that's, is yeah. can we live together with each other? And that's what I was just thinking, too. Like, like yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, okay, humanity survives. Okay, that's fine. Like, we don't right. care about like, humanity. We know that, yeah. <laughs> we don't yeah. care about humanity. We care about the people that we've actually come to be watching right. for the last four seasons. Um, and you know what? For as much as, I mean, I want to get into, like, the you know the idea of the mythology and the you know religious aspects and everything a little bit more as much as i appreciate that and i think it gets a bad rap in bsg and maybe want to like defend it a little bit on the other hand like it's hard to beat blood on the scales for just the sheer human emotional drama element of it of like i like that the mythology hovers in the background and it's there as for context and it's there as a motivator for why people do what they do but like the real story is our characters are trying to kill each other and like what's going to happen with that and that is you know i think maybe that's why they have maybe better command of the story or it's more tighter or something is because it's focused on the character drama rather than character drama in response to these larger religious mythical quests and everything that they have to fulfill. So maybe TV Guide was right to put Blood on the Scales as our number one. I mean, like, not that it has to be every person's individual favorite episode, but, like, as a culmination of the dramatic stakes of the story. Maybe it is a bit of a high point, and then after that, it becomes a little bit of falling action, um, starting to like slide into the you know the denouement rather than amping up for you know the climax. Mm. So, yeah, can we? Can we? Um... So, because like just as you were saying, like the character stuff, like I agree. Um, there was, I think it was in the is it the mission statement, and I know we were kind of, um, going to talk about that, uh, yeah. as like the series as a whole. But like, mm-hmm. is it in there where they where they talk about like? space opera without the opera part like right taking the opera out of space opera which is like is that true this is yeah do they do that because i kind of feel like i guess it i guess it depends on on what you're considering the opera part like so here's my my theory which is mine which is i and and i feel like i was thinking about this today i'm like this this needs to be like a paper probably so I don't have it fully worked out, but I I feel like after rewatching this, they took the the opera out of space opera only to put it back in. You know, like I, I feel like the mission statement, which we can link to, does 
describe the beginning of the series fairly faithfully of their approach. Um, but I'm not sure that it doesn't change from there. And certainly like, and I mean, certainly by the end, you're way more in the realm of space opera than where you began with the gritty realistic military drama. But even in season one, they end the season by invoking this idea of the opera house. <laughs> like, or like you're literally like ending your first season. I didn't even think of that, but you're like, you you're ending the first season by like having a mythical Baltar in this vision quest of that, you know, that God's angel has given to him of, you know, the importance of whatever this opera house is. And like, Pretty quickly, I feel like they get back into, and I'm not like criticizing it, it's fine with me, but I, what strikes me in all the interviews and the panel discussions is how much Ron Moore emphasizes that the mission statement was a sales document in order to convince the network to, you know, fund the show. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that he was flat out lying through his teeth. Like, I do think there are aesthetic things that they definitely stuck to like the kind of documentary style of filming the space battles and the the realism of the sets and the flawed nature of the characters and all that stuff but um i think he definitely oversold the extent to which they wouldn't be drawing on mythology and religion and you know those big themes as like important aspects of the story Certainly not as it went on. Yeah. Like, the literal edition of an opera house <laughs> didn't even occur to me when I was making that statement. Um, it, well, it only occurred to me later when I was real, when I was listening, watching all these panels where they keep talking about, you know, this mission statement and then rereading it, taking the opera out of space opera. Yeah, but it's like, like that's literally the. I was looking in the text it's of like the, the mission opposite statement, of what they did. <laughs> but it, it's literally the subtitle of the mission statement. Yes. <laughs> and they literally put an opera house in the story. And not just, but like. And like, like a huge, like the main mythological mystery of the story is the nature of the opera right. house. Like it's a central theme. And I mean, if you ignore what I just said about like the mutiny being the actual climax of the series. Like, if you're going for, like, the climax of the finale, it's in the opera house, i.e., you know, right. this place within, you know, the ship itself. But, like... Right. <laughs> I I don't even know what to say to that. So, yeah. Which I, I find really funny. Like, I think it's... I want to say Ron Moore is a fantastic troll, but, like, I don't think he necessarily was doing it to like screw with anybody i think they had a unique approach to something but like any good tv show they allowed it to evolve they didn't say this three-page sales document that got stapled accidentally to the front of all the scripts is now the only thing that we will allow ourselves to adhere to but i think they they gave themselves rain to let it go where it would. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, it's a lot more interesting for that. Like, I know there are critics of the finale and the final season and the, and the kind of break of 
you know, uh, you know, more supernatural elements in the story and everything. But on the other hand, like, I kind of like that it starts out one thing and kind of becomes something else. Um, you know, watching the evolution of that over four seasons is more interesting to me than having four seasons of the same thing. Um, sure. Where you could have just had, we're going from one resource crisis to the next for four years. Like, you know, or you would have gotten to the mutiny a lot faster. You know, if all you'd allowed yourself to do is have military conflict and not have some other things going on. Well, and so, like, like I definitely hear what you're saying, too, about, like, the mission statement being primarily a sales document, right? Like, a sale, as part of the sales pitch. Because, like, taking the opera out of space opera, like, yeah, totally, I can see, like, Hollywood or whatever executives being like, oh, yeah, this is new and fresh. And, like, mm -hmm. as a, like, as an elevator pitch, that like yeah. totally sounds oh this is great you know we're they're taking the opera out of space opera they're you know doing something completely different but like in, in reality like like what does that mean like what is opera in that instance hmm. it's drama right like soap opera is yeah melodrama daytime melodrama in between ads for soap and things that housewives would buy. So it's, you know, it's cheesy, frothy, you know, melodrama that's geared towards, you know, the average but in, woman in like the 1960s or whatever is like where the term comes from. So, I mean, space opera is that, that he, for me, like it's the human melodrama, but transplanted to this, science fiction or fantastic sort of setting mm -hmm. um it's the reason we watch it's the reason why i think we're arguing that you know the mutiny is maybe the dramatic culmination of the story is it's the dramatic tension between the characters um and which again i like the mythology i think it adds a lot of layers and flavors but that is not interesting unless you have the characters in front of it to focus the story on and then allow your, your mythology and your philosophy to sort of take place in the background. Yeah. So I guess what, what, so where I was, where I was going with that too, is that like, there's actually a huge range and quality I just, and i mean this is true i'm sure of like any genre right but like mm -hmm. there is a huge range in quality of what like a space opera might be because like in that just yeah. like even reading through like what that is i mean so like on the wikipedia page they they quote everything from like asimov and the foundation series and e smith's lensman series to Ender's Game and Star Wars and Flash Gordon. And it's like, there's, right. that's a, there's, that's a, that's a pretty group. big range of stuff. And like mm -hmm. the Foundation series is actually kind of hard SF. Like mm -hmm. there's hard mathematical science-based stuff there. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and and Ender's Game is maybe a little softer, like not quite as hard, but like is definitely like military, like hardened sort of battle, you know, like human life or death kind of stuff. Like where Star Wars is definitely more, you know, okay, it's the force. It's not quite magic, but it's kind of magic. Mm-hmm. And you've just got like these spaceships that kind of go here and there and everywhere and rescue the princess and you know at least the initial right. you know version of it and then you know without getting into all the sequels like so yeah you you know I think I just feel like and and I mean flash so like if you're thinking like space opera is just like the Flash Gordon like mm. serial that's literally like. Flash rescuing the princess like every episode mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Okay, sure. Let's take that out of the space opera. But if you're thinking like Foundation series or Ender's Game or something like mm-hmm. that, like I would say like it's actually very much in line with those types of uh mm-hmm. you know, those types of stories and um yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, I guess just for me... Um, it, but it's not... You're saying it's not um, antithetical to the kind of gritty thing that they're describing no, here. Yeah, not at all. Like, I, I would say that, like... From, like, a... And so, like, a book perspective, too, I would, I would include, uh, you know, something like even, like, Starship Troopers from Heinlein, which is a lot more philosophical than, than actual like science fiction. Um, even like, I mean, it, it Mm -hmm. has the, but like, but is definitely in that military or, um, uh, uh, Joseph Haldeman's the forever war and, and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing where it's, I don't know. Like, like, I just feel like it's definitely like, it's a big tent genre or subgenre, I guess, Mm -hmm. where, like it sounds nice to say we can take the opera out of space opera but then you kind of have to you have to kind of define what you mean by opera mm-hmm. and i mean space parts easier cuz like mm-hmm. it's just in space like spaceships yes. and whatever okay that's fine but we have that so you're taking the opera part out of it but like what is the opera part and that to well, me is the yeah. character and like yeah. I, I don't disagree that like the term comes from similar to like soap opera, like what you were saying, like yeah, yeah. you know it, it like that's where the term comes from. But like when you're looking at what what people actually classify as space opera, it's just a, it's just a wide variety of of things that I feel like in different parts and different seasons of BSG they kind of mm-hmm. like cover all of that. And I don't I don't I don't know that I would even agree that like. In the beginning, it's not space opera, mm-hmm. even if that's like the stated goal, and they, you know, the Hollywood executives sort of deluded themselves or allowed themselves to be deluded by Ron Moore into thinking yeah. that they weren't doing space opera. I don't think it yeah. kind of ever is not space opera. I guess would yeah. be my contention. Yeah, yeah. No, I would agree with that, and yeah, I think and and the opera element can mean different things. Like it can, you know, imply this kind of um heightened melodramatic kind of emotion but also you mentioned one aspect of the serialization of you know even something like flash gordon where it's like a a series of 
episodic adventures, you know, that again, that's very much what soap operas do, right? Of like some of these soap operas that have been running for like 50 years where it just continues. Um, like that's part of it as well is telling a long story in like, you know, space opera can just mean, uh, you know, an ongoing episodic adventure in space, like taking those serialized formats and just transplanting them to a new setting or a new genre, um, which, yeah, I mean, I think BSG ticks all of these boxes. So, um, yeah, I do think there's a little bit of a slightly disingenuous nature to this mission statement, which is really intriguing to me, um, of wanting to lead the network to certain conclusions that may or may not have been completely what he had in mind, but were effective for getting them excited about doing something new. Um, which I think was true enough. Like, again, sure. in terms of the visual style, maybe nothing had been done like this before. Maybe they are doing new things. It's just a matter of how do you package that to make it digestible for like soulless tv executives who don't care about the history of science fiction you know <laughs> like how do you make that comprehensible to them and this is a, one way to do that yeah. well and so just so kind of my last little diatribe here on space opera is the other thing is that the term itself has been redefined several times so like sure um even like even not referencing like soap operas um which were which were actually like radio dramas originally right like mm -hmm. it like it the term precedes even like television and stuff mm -hmm. um so it was used um from what i understand in reading here about it right now on wikipedia <laughs> it was used like in terms of like referencing originally stories that were basically like uh what they called horse operas which is like another term derived from the same soap opera kind of idea of formulaic westerns and space operas were sort of originally defined as like westerns in space so instead mm. of indians you have aliens instead of like horses you have rocket ships but like right you know basically like just which is a thing that happened in like the 20s and 30s and and they were mm -hmm. like pulp that's literally where like the pulp fiction like they took the the pulp fiction of the western and like just applied sort of space alien elements to it but then mm -hmm. but then later like like it became redefined and so like the del rey's um western and judy lynn who you know formed the del rey imprint you know publishing mm -hmm. imprint um we're publishing like Lee Brackett, who was like one of the early women writers of science fiction and, and was called like queen of the soap opera, but like saying like, she is doing really interesting stuff actually. And, and like changing how, how like we view science fiction and, and of course, so, which is part of the reason why she then gets tapped to write the first draft of the empire strikes back. Um, and her version isn't the one that ends up. She actually died uh, very shortly after writing that first version and, and then forgot to see the 
the final movie itself. But anyway, like all of that to say, like that's you know there was like a redefinition of that term, and like there's you know an ongoing thing. So like is maybe a better question not like are we taking the opera out of uh, of soap opera out of a uh, space opera, but are is this actually just a redefinition like if the point of the mission statement is to uh it's nothing less than the reinvention of science fiction television is it actually not taking anything away from space opera and science fiction mm -hmm. in general but is it just redefining what space opera means mm. um because that's kind of what the claim is or the goal so rather than taking things out whatever those operatic elements are rather than removing them it's adding in things that people didn't necessarily think could be added like mm -hmm. you know like like these you know kind of west wing style politics or um you know the documentary camera work um you know those it, it's not it's it's not taking away the operatic elements to get to the gritty stuff it's saying these things don't have to be um mutually exclusive and things that haven't occurred to people or maybe haven't occurred in a while that you can also add these other elements into a space opera let's put that back in and show how they can work together. Right. I think that's a much more synthesized thing of what they actually ended up with. Um, sure. Yeah. And I mean, just cause they wrote a mission statement doesn't mean they were successful in adhering to it. Like, I don't, I don't think it, that needs to be a criticism per se of like, well, it's a terrible series because they didn't do what they set out to do. Like, No, I think it's a better series for not feeling beholden to to the mission statement. You know, I think, um, and I think Ron Moore is the first one to say in all these different interviews that this was a document written for a particular audience. And um, mm. it wasn't necessarily supposed to be the, the final word on what they were going to do he you know seems to have allowed himself the freedom to find the show as they developed it right um and you know i, I was there's a podcast with him where he's interviewed by mo ryan a few years after the show's over um which i think is worth listening to and it's after the lost finale and both shows have, I think, come under similar sorts of criticisms for their finales. Um, and it's kind of interesting to hear Ron Moore defend that kind of um, determine your story as you go along viewpoint. Like, he's very much not the guy who sat there and planned four years out in the first sure. year. You know, he, like, by his own admission said this this thing will write itself as we go and we can't be too overly prescriptive of what we want it to be so um you know 
your mileage will vary as to if you like that approach, but that is seems to be the the way that he directs his shows. So um all right. Uh so we're actually we're like over time already and we haven't even like hit like most of what we were gonna yeah. go through. Um are there any other, like, I mean, we don't have to talk about everything we wrote down. Are there any other particular points that, um, did you want to talk about Guillermo Adama for a minute before we leave? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, I'm, I do want to talk about that because, like, well, can we stick? Uh, or we can just we... say we're going to go long. Yeah, I feel like let's just do that because, like. This is our first, uh, our first you know, series, series recap. recap, and so like, if we can't go along here, right? What's the point? Because I I do feel like there's more to like talk about with the mission statement, not related to even like the opera stuff, but like okay, um, so like okay, how how much did they stick with it? Like outside of like the the broad like we're redefining or we're taking the opera out of space opera like like what i mean i don't we don't need to go paragraph by paragraph but like were there any particular parts of it um that you felt like they did or didn't or like you know because like so maybe maybe i'll answer my own question first of like like i think we've already sort of acknowledged that like they do really well with like the complex characters. Like I think as far as like not, I I don't know that they completely got away from like the cocky guy and the fast talker mm. and the brain. Mm. And I mean, what's, what's like head six and head Baltar, if not the wacky alien sidekick, but like, <laughs> um, like, I think, I think there are some of those labels that we can apply to certain people. Like, Okay, the cocky gal is certainly right. Starbuck. That's what I was just thinking. Like yeah. you know, but like, but I think they do enough of complexity in the characters that that it's at least not always those people. Like, or they're not just that. Like, right, right. Starbuck might be the cocky guy, you know, but she's also other things besides that. Yeah. So she, she fulfills a certain archetype, but isn't pure archetype. She's allowed to be character, you know, apart from the, the thing that she stands for in the genre. Right. Exactly. So like, I, I think we both kind of agree like that from a character perspective, they, they were pretty successful, I think in the mission. Um, I would say the science aspect, they were pretty successful there's a there's some hand waving here and there mm -hmm. um we don't get like a real in-depth like idea of like what faster than light travel is but you get some parameters around how it can be used and when it can be used uh what the limitations of it are um sometimes those limitations seem more limiting than others maybe but like mm -hmm. I think in general, like that type of thing, you know, happens. It, there's not just like, like there are consequences, you know, like to like airlocks and hulls and like the ways mm -hmm. that things happen in space and like, 
Um, I still think one of the coolest shots is, you know, the Galactica descending in mm-hmm. full battle onto New Caprica and like yeah. kind of that kind of th- that sort of thing um, where uh, the technology of, you know, the portrayal and like the science and um, the actual like maneuvers in battle and those types of things. Um, they mentioned specifically like our fighters aren't airplanes and aren't bound to World War II dogfight conventions and that kind of thing, which Star Wars was and kind of still is. Like even in The Last Jedi, I feel like there were some moments where it's like the X-Wings were acting like they were in atmosphere when they clearly aren't, you know, mm-hmm. and and some of those types of things where I feel the the first the original star wars the the whole death star trench run is like right out of um oh geez what's the the, you know the 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 movie with like the the dam busters you know um oh i forget the name of it off the top of my head uh amy sturgis would say you're dumb curtis for not remembering this but (laughs) um you know no she would never say that she's way too nice to say that but anyway sorry uh like literally like is right out of you know world war ii airplane dogfight type movies is my point so like yes yes. um i think they do a really good job of like sort of rethinking the ways that that the science and the technology and that kind of stuff do it so i guess like we're left with like the editorial we kind of talked about the story like we covered that maybe the opera stuff so like the editorial and more like technical cinematic type stuff Mm -hmm. is maybe the only other thing to discuss there yeah which i would say maybe is the the area that adhered closest to this like the visual look of things of they never um there are times where things get in one of the special features on the dvd they talk about how they loosened up a little bit in that like things don't remain quite as grungy and high contrast as they are in the first season that like the lighting got a little bit softer so you could see people's eyes a little bit better and that sort of thing but like that's really the biggest change in terms of um visual style like they never really deviate from the thing of how they shoot the battles where it's almost like you have somebody holding the camera who's trying to get the people into frame and you know things are kind of shooting around like there are scenes here or there that go for a more stylized look, um, mm. I guess, especially as the kind of mythology gets going and you have people having like religious experiences and stuff, you get a little more, you know, dreamy with the camera work. But um, but pretty much, I think the show looks very consistent from beginning to end, which I think maybe is what allows you to experiment in some other ways is you know there's a there's a consistency to Mm -hmm. the the aesthetic um and like you were saying in terms of the science like i think it does maintain basically like a hard sf aesthetic in terms of not that all the science works absolutely or totally makes sense but i don't know that that's really always what what defines hard sf it's more like does it seem to have that quality of plausibility to it? 
whether or not like it actually does, mm -hmm. you know, is it like convincing as this, this comes across as plausibly realistic. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it pretty much achieves that like every once in a while, it'll kind of stretch your, your disbelief a little bit, but pretty rarely. Um, like they establish their rules of straightest contacts and FTL jumps and, you know, uh, how hatches, like how, you know, airlocks work and all that kind of thing. Um, right. Well, and so like, yeah, I like the, the, um, sort of the Tolkienian idea of like the illusion of depth with mm -hmm. hard sci-fi I think is more right. important than like so like right like with Heinlein, actual actual verifiable physics like and, yeah like so Robert Heinlein was an engineer in the Navy and so like a lot of his stories you know incorporate knowledge as an engineer and that's not to say that like like he would work out like the you know orbits of like planets that he's talking about and stuff so that like they would appear accurately in the skyway but that doesn't mean that like he put like the log logarithmic tables that he actually used and like his slide rule measurements like in the book but mm -hmm. you know that like he did it you know and and that there's a uh I mean, illusion isn't maybe quite the right word, but there's a, an appearance of accuracy into mm -hmm. like the ways that like, you know, the moons of a planet would, you know, appear relative to their, you know, to the yeah. planet itself and like that kind of thing. And, and the ships, you know, how long it would take like for a ship in, you know, a certain height orbit to actually like make landfall and those types of things. It's, yeah. You know, the results of that work is in the novel, even if, like, you're, you know, it's not always showing the work or explaining to, like, every little detail of, like, how it actually does work out. And I feel like they do a pretty good job of that. Again, like, using the FTLs as an example of there's, you know, there's rules and there's sort of limitations and by and large they stick to them. And when they don't stick to them, they, like, call it out, like, oh, that's beyond the red line. Like, this could mm -hmm. happen. Like, so you know that there's a risk and that they're sort of choosing to, like, turn off the fail-safes in that moment that mm -hmm. are probably, like, built into the system or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, and you don't realize how much those little bits of nitty-gritty have an effect on you because you're not paying attention. Like you're paying attention to the story and what's happening with the characters and everything. But, um, like, like the sheer volume of numbers that you get, um, like has an effect on you as a viewer of like, Oh, they clearly know what they're talking about because they're saying all these numbers. Like, um, in <laughs> sure. one of the, in one of the, which I'm only thinking of now, like I never thought about that while I'm watching it, but, um, in one of the, DVD features, um, Alessandro Giuliani talks about having to write all of his dialogue all over the set because he had to remember like 15 billion different coordinates and greatest contacts and all those things. And they had to be right because whoever came up with these things 
did so in a certain scientific way. And it's like, if you've got a number wrong, then you'd have to do it over again. So like, just the fact that they cared about that attention to detail to say, you can't just say a random string of numbers. It's these ones that we're giving you and we want you to say it in this way, in this order and everything. I think it does have an effect on the viewer, even if you're not consciously taking it in. Like, I don't understand a single word when they're yelling about that stuff in the CIC, but it communicates to me a scientific competence mm-hmm. of like, oh, here are here are scientists and engineers who are saying things that they understand and they're communicating in a language that I can't speak, but I trust that they know what they're doing. Right. And and especially important with someone like Gaeta as like, you know, someone who's in charge of of that level of detail um right certain people had to do the techno babble more than others so like yeah that was like part of his routine more so than you know like right. Rosalind and, doesn't have to worry about and that, would have right or like a random marine like it would it would be different if you had like you know some random grunt saying like we're going to these coordinates or whatever, but like coming from Gaeta, who like we we learn has like a science background and is really interested in like programming and the like internal operations of like the navigational system and like all of this stuff. Like it feels really like natural to like have him being the one to say that kind of stuff. Right. So I think so. I just sort of like as a complimentary thing, like that's not the science of it, but it's how the science works out with the characters and right, uh, right. Uh, you know, sort right. Of... And how do you, if you have to have all of this techno babble and exposition, how do you make that interesting? Will you make it about character? Like who's saying it and why, and what that tells you about them makes it more than just a boring string of. Like, like I wouldn't want to know all of Heinlein's, you know, charts of how he figured out his engineering. Like, that's not interesting to me. But if he can make the exposition work in the story, then that becomes interesting. Right. Like, if there's a reason for it to be there, then it's, you know, suddenly that becomes like a part of the, the way that it's telling you the story. So one of the other things that um, was just that I was sort of uh, I had picked out one bit from the mission statement, but kind of added a couple other things is just around sort of the precedence that they're going for. So um, one one sentence from the mission statement is if there's a model here, it would be vaguely Hitchcockian. That is a sense Mm -hmm. of building suspense and dramatic tension through the use of extending takes, long masters, which pull the audience into the reality of the action rather than the than the distract through the use of ostentatious cutting patterns. So obviously, Mm -hmm. very like directorial, you know, technique. uh, I'm sure that means a lot more to like a director than like me personally. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, But like. Even just thinking of that idea of like, I mean, Hitchcock is definitely known for his like different sorts of angle shots and and using the medium of 
the camera eye in a way that like affects how you see the story, like literally affects how you see the story, but also sort of the psychological effect, um, you yeah. know, with like, you know, tilting, you know, um, you know, like sort of angling on like a doorway so that it's like off kilter and like that kind mm-hmm. of, you know, that's, the, yeah. that's my very amateur, like obvious sort of like thing. The one thing that I know that Hitchcock does sometimes. Um, but like, well, and they mention extended takes. Yes. I'm thinking of like the opening shot inside BSG in the miniseries of like the first scene when you pull in is following Adama sure. through all of his different stations so, as he meets all the secondary characters and everything. So they at least followed that part of the mission statement for the first five minutes of the, the miniseries. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and I, I don't have enough chops to like determine like it does it stay Hitchcockian throughout the entire series or right. whatever. Um, but they, I mean, they definitely do some different things. Um, I mean, so the other thing, so the, the bit, the big thing that comes to my mind, of course, was Firefly because like, yeah, we've talked about how, um, they use the same FX team. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, to do like some of the CGI stuff, it, like to the point where they even include like a Firefly class spaceship, like as part fleet. of the fleet and or something right. at one point, right? So there's that aspect of it, um, but also like the the snap zoom, you know, idea of like you know maybe you know you've got like a camera that's like you know scrolling right to a uh, or uh, scanning or whatever right to like a ship and then like like it's someone like trying to hit the focus button like at the same time and like mm-hmm. you know you kind of like get the little back and forth there to give it sort of that more live thing and um certainly like we didn't didn't invent that for flyer firefly but that's used a lot in there and is has been quote I I added a little source here we can link to um where they talk about um Firefly as an influence on later things and BSG coming not too long after it uh mm-hmm. you know through the use of that CG but also sort of I mean explicitly because I like it almost seems like they sought out that same special effects team be- because yeah. of that reason like because of yeah. their association with like I can't prove that but like it would be very hard for me after reading the mission statement and then knowing what they do with Firefly and then saying like hey let's pull in this special effects team like for there not to have been some really explicit conversations about that being a reason why yeah well and yeah I can think of shots in Firefly where it's like the camera seems to be mounted on the wing of the ship, you know, and like it's shaking and vibrating as the ship is taking off and that sort of thing. And even just the idea of like, rather than a very sleek futuristic spaceship, it's like, it feels just like this rusting sort of hunk of metal that they somehow got into orbit and is flying around. Yeah. Like pieces literally falling off and like, yeah, yeah. like that is, and, and like, you know, when they have to turn it by like grabbing pieces of something and like, it takes like three people to like pull five different levers in order to even like turn the thing. Like that kind of, that's the, 
gritty, realistic aesthetic that I think Ron Moore is describing here mm -hmm. of feeling plausibly real, you know, in it, is it real? Like, do we have spaceships like either of these? Like, no, but there's a, a, a realism to mm -hmm. the way that they're presented. Um, and even like when you were talking about space opera as deriving from the Western, well, what's Firefly if not that? Right. It's like a Western in space is the, Just, that's the, that's the log line for Firefly. It's a, you know? Right. It's a space Western comedy romance drama. There you go, yeah. right? So, like, it 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 also is space opera. It it's another gritty, realistic space opera, in a way, beating Ron Moore to his mission statement like a year early. <laughs> you know, um, sure. I mean, doing different things. I mean, it the genre. It's like western rather than military or whatever. But um, but I do think that it broke a lot of the ground that BSG is sort of playing in here. Um, yeah. Um, so the other one that sort of comes to mind when thinking of like gritty realism is, um, the, is Blade Runner, mm. um, which, you know, I mean, we, there's also the Edward James almost connection there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think in one in one of the you, you sent me a few like um, panels or like um, interviews kind of things. Um, I didn't watch all of them, but like one of the ones I did watch uh, was the Paley Center. Is that mm -hmm. right? Um, and they talk about that, like that. There's definitely a connection there. Um, and you know, so just this idea of like a futuristic world that isn't like the shiny, mm. uh, you know, so Blade Runner of course is from the early eighties and, you know, you're coming off sort of, um, the star Wars and like, you know, Dune, I guess would be kind of thrown in there, the movie version. And, um, you know, some of those like, 70s and 60s um sci-fi that that are more so like logan's run or even like alien which like you know just has like the more futuristic mm. feel whereas this is more like yes it's futuristic but it's also just like you still have like the grubby like uh you know urban setting <laughs> you know and right. like that kind of, that kind of kind of a really different aesthetic if you want to call mm -hmm. it that or anti-aesthetic maybe is a better term um and giving it that sort of realism the grittiness to it um yeah that hadn't been seen before that um so so i do feel like it's a callback to that um and i mean i'm sure there's other stuff that's between that maybe like picked up on that and and had worked through that um you know a bit here and there but that also feels like very much the sort of thing that they're they're calling back to um yeah and, and maybe there are other examples of that in between like you said but certainly in that panel they're discussing it as 
the as an unexplored avenue of you know Blade Runner sort of opened this door and has anybody really fully embraced the avenue that it pointed towards right um not I mean I think in a in a few different ways like just not just the look of it and the kind of grubby urban sort of realism of it but um in the the theme of these humanoid you know androids slash cylons or you know whatever they're called like sure like it's it's concerns are very similar like even just in terms of the story that's being told um you know and not just picking up on the uh machine like chrome um kind of bad guys from the original series but the decision to make the Cylons appear human takes it closer to Blade Runner than to the original Battlestar like that completely changes everything about the show Mm. um you know and the philosophical concerns of the relationships between the Cylons and the humans like you it it that defines their conflict for the rest of the series. Um, Which is just another example of how limitations are good because in one of the other, I don't remember which of the special features this was in, but that's something they arrived to just out of practical budgetary concerns of, well, centurions are really expensive how are we going to make the cylons cheap we'll just have actors play them you know which sounds like a really obvious idea but it takes practical concerns to get you toward your really obvious idea that becomes like the the central you know conceit of the entire show is that the cylons look like us um so Sure. Anyway, sometimes it's good to like not have enough money to do the thing that you might have otherwise done. Um, I mean, I guess what I'm really struck by in this mission statement, this three page document is how much the title, I think what, what I'm coming around to is that the title implies certain things about the story, but really most of what's in the document is about the technique, right? Like it's mostly talking about the visual look, the editing, um, the camera work, the science. Um, it makes a few allusions to story and character, but mostly it's about the way that it's going to be shot and and filmed and everything and I think in that sense it's very true and ends up being a fairly accurate prediction of where they go I think there are implications in the mission statement that aren't necessarily what Ron Moore intended and might have led people to believe something else um but yeah I mean and maybe that's what they did in the end is redefined what the operatic aspect of it could mean while you know doing the visual style 
in a way that hadn't really been fully done before on TV. Sure. So, um, the other, so the one last thing, um, and just thinking through, and I didn't add this to the notes, sorry, so I'm kind of throwing off audible mm -hmm. here. Um, from a story perspective, how, so like we get a lot of the, um, well, maybe this is going into sort of the themes and stuff. So like kind of combining the mythology and religion, you're, you're also like, the all of the the all of this is happening before and this all happening again um the sort of like the classical influences i guess on the mm. story so there's the sort of obvious like the greco-roman uh overarching you know like sort of names and mm -hmm. both places you know the planets and and the people um especially in like the call signs you know yeah. Athena and and um, uh, 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 sorry, Lee Apollo. Apollo, thank you, <laughs> um, and that kind of thing. Um, right, right, and like the the biblical allusions, the and, various and, biblical and or scriptural overtones, sacred text. Yeah. You know, yeah. is Starbuck an angel or what? You know, like there's that kind of stuff. Um, also, like just from a just from a broad stroke story perspective um considering possibly the whole arc of the bsg as kind of like the aeneid so it's mm. you know a strong leader adama you know leaving you know taking the remnants of a sacked civilization you know, a destroyed, uh, 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 you know, what, whatever you want to call it, like an, an invaded, uh, sort of in a, um, uh, almost Trojan, Trojan horse, horse kind of way, kind of way. um, yeah. you know, and, and leading them to, does that make Baltar home. the horse? <laughs> well, I mean, Trojan horse is a type of, you know, computer virus as well, obviously named after the classical Greek story. So, um, mm -hmm. like, you know, the idea being that, like, if he's not the Trojan, like that there's a, there's a computer component too of like, you know, there was something loaded into the defense mm -hmm. mainframe and, maybe it was a trojan horse program right like yeah. so there there's definitely like ways that you could sort of like work that in but yeah no just i, I mean i think if you look at the details like yes there's going to be a lot of like differences and whatever um also like i mean cylon the name cylon is uh from an early so cylon of athens is mm -hmm. uh an early uh, the first reliably dated event in Athenian history, according to Wikipedia, um, that involves like a seizure of power in the city of Athens and, you know, mm. um, like mass graves and killings and stuff like that. So, you, you know, again, mm, like, interesting. like there's, I, you know, I don't, 
like any of the sort of classical illusions in the story. Like, I don't want to read too much into that because I, mm -hmm. you know, obviously they go their own way with a lot of this stuff. Um, but there is this, uh, you know, kind of strong, from an influence perspective, kind of a strong classical, uh, you know, element to it. So just kind of wanted to throw that out there too. And just, I, I don't, know how much we need to spend time on that but since we're talking about influences and yeah. the gritty realism it, there's also definitely a component of like if you know is is the Aeneid the original to the this is all happened before and it will all happen again like all mm -hmm. of these are just like uh you know variations on the theme and that theme is Aeneid <laughs> mm. yeah no, I like that. And and I think I kind of I think I kind of mentioned like in favor of this narrative of gritty realism um and and maybe as part of the dis some of the dissatisfaction with the ending that some people have, I think those more mythological illusions and religious elements get um not overlooked but maybe get kind of a bad rap as like, you know, uh, this annoying metaphysical detour that the show took in in and and it, a distraction from their true calling as this gritty realistic thing but i kind of feel like it's a little bit of that chocolate and peanut butter you know of of i like the i like the contrast between the two mm -hmm. and um and I like as the, you know, I even, for all the flaws of the later seasons, and I think the early seasons had their own flaws, um, I like the way that that element grows stronger over time and becomes what starts out as this very, as a more so in the background element, becomes more and more prominent. Um, it's pretty interesting. And there's probably like, like, I didn't know that about the the Cylon illusion. That's new to me. So um, there's probably like a lot that you could do. And I'm sure a lot has been written about, mm. you know, classical illusion in, you know, Battlestar. Um, and it's another example of being creative with what you have, because the, the illusions are there in the classic series, right? Of like a character named Apollo and a character named Athena. Mm. So, but what they're doing is they're thinking about that, right? And like, okay, if we have all these these names built into the story, why don't we like use that as a story? Um, you know, I mean, the central Aeneid plot is sort of there in the classic series too, but I think that the writers of the new show started to really kind of expand that and, you know, use it in some interesting ways. Um, well, and on the theme of, and it will all happen again, there's also a potential movie that could be exploring yeah. even, even more. And I guess the question becomes is like, is, are are they like, are they, is the movie using the same characters as we know it? Or is it like another like reboot? Well, so this is what I was looking up because I think this announcement first came out 
a little bit before we first started discussing this show, which is like a long time ago now, mm-hmm. um, like almost two years ago. Um, and I looked it up and there's really not much more information. Um, well, the same the same writer and director are attached. So that's promising, I guess. It, it has a studio, which is good. Um, and it has like a producer. Um, and the, so the most recent article I found was in July. So sounds like things are chugging along in development. Um, it doesn't say what, but so my understanding is that there's different rights, like like um Glenn Larson retained the the movie rights whereas the television rights stayed with the studio or the network or something mm-hmm. so um so if this is a movie that they have acquired the rights to i think it wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with the sci-fi channel production other than you know the name and the basic premise and and i suppose the characters that are from the from the original series um which could be really interesting right like with this this that this is all happened before and it will all happen again i think that's licensed to keep retelling and to keep adapting and i think that's what the new show did with the with the old one is with that line um, from Peter Pan, I think what it says is like, we're telling our new story, but it kind of hints that this could be the same story, but like, how does it relate to the old story? You're not quite sure, you know, which one comes first? Um, Are these merely repetitions of the same events playing themselves out over different periods of time? When we discover that Earth factors into this in the distant past what does that mean how do these different versions relate to each other i kind of feel like even if a new movie just completely did its own thing you could still kind of work them all in under the umbrella of this has all happened before and will all happen again you know Mm. sure and that feels like inclusive Rather than the kind of annoying canon purity purity way of saying like, oh, this version doesn't count. Um, Right. Like, this feels more like the approach that says, well, they all count in different ways and at different times. And they're, they're different experiments with the same sort of tale. But that's my guess. It doesn't actually say, like, I don't, I can't imagine that they're looking to do a continuation of this version of the story with, like, these actors. Yeah, and I guess um, I I hadn't realized that there were different rights involved. So that that pretty clearly, to me, right. sounds like it wouldn't, it wouldn't be. Right. And everybody looks a lot older now. So it's always hard to like do a continuation of the story. Like you can't go back and do like 
the razor version of like meanwhile in the middle of the bsg story what was happening over here you know like that just i don't think that would be satisfying at this point like you just make it something new um right so i guess this is where i should mention that there were other like aborted spin-offs um you know, I mean, we're going to talk about the plan, so I don't want to get into that. Um, <coughs> um, Caprica, which ran on the Sci Fi Channel for one uh season, um, in 2010, so like you know, within a year after the show ended, they already had another you know prequel basically mm-hmm. that was premiering, um, which got like fair reviews, pretty low ratings, so. It, it all it got was one season um i've seen it it didn't do much for me personally did you watch it at the time or i did not i've never seen it i explicitly made the decision not to because i thought oh interesting i thought it would be terrible it it's not like awful but it's it's not great um fair enough it 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 loses uh, some of the gritty realism of what made Battlestar so special, but like even the characters and and I think the acting aren't quite as impressive as, mm-hmm. um, and I think the loss of the Cylons as real characters is kind of a blow to the story, um, because it's kind of the, about the development of them, so it like. They're really kind of metal, you know, machines. Um, right. You know, so it's like you don't really have the, the dynamic that you had in Battlestar. Um, and then there was also Blood and Chrome, which was like a, a web series, which was kind of supposed to be maybe a pilot, a backdoor pilot, but didn't end up getting picked up. So the 10 episode miniseries um, or web series is kind of a two hour movie that you can check out, um, which did have some of the original people involved, like, you know, David Icke and then some of the writers, Michael Taylor, Bradley Thompson and David Weddle all worked on it. Um, So it was kind of made by some of the same people, but um, and, and, and kind of featured that it, it's back with young Husker Adama in his prime fighting Cylons in the first war, which we all know how great that was in Razor. So <laughs> why not, uh, you know, yeah. revisit that idea, but that didn't really go anywhere either. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think a little bit, they were attempts to kind of continue telling stories in the world without really getting the cocktail right of what made the world and the characters kind of compelling in the first place. Sure. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know, are there any other of these other themes that you want to talk through? Um, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about diversity and gender roles and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think we can kind of finish with that. So you um in one of those panels, uh 
Edward James almost talks about, um, you know, basically sending like Latinos to space, right? Like he kind of joked, he's like, we've never been there before. So it was kind of, kind of nice. Um, and he jokes about uh, Guillermo Adama and right, that sort right. of thing. Um, but I wanted to bring that up because like, there is some diversity, like, uh, you know, obviously, you know, him, um, you've got Grace Park, uh, a few other more minor characters here and there. Um, mm-hmm. Anyone obvious I'm sort of missing? Um, D and Gata. Right. So D, right, would be the big one um, that I was trying to think of and couldn't <laughs> for some reason. Um yeah, and so I mean, you know, some, but like I don't know. I guess I, it's one of those things where it's like you know, I just so um, Studio Three Hundred and Sixty, uh, which is an NPR program, just had a um, retrospective on like Star Trek and mm. the original Star Trek, and just thinking of like okay, thinking about like the number of like main characters there and like the amount of diversity on like the bridge of the enterprise in the original series. Like, do we even meet like that level of diversity really in VSG or cause I don't know. I feel like we kind of don't in a way. Um, well, who is there in the original bridge in Star Trek? So Uhura, Chekhov, uh, who's white, but, Russian in the middle of like the Cold War. <laughs> um, right. So that uh, was part of my Sulu. question is how are we defining diverse? Is it Yeah. Is it nationality? Is it is it color or, you know. So I I I'm just throwing the question out like it it feels to me like we don't meet that, but like I'll be honest, I didn't like this is just sort of something that I've been vaguely thinking about since, you know, three hours ago when I first watched that mm-hmm. panel. Um, so it's not, and I mean, that's maybe more a reflection on me than anything of that. I've only been considering it since then, but um, yeah, I guess I'm just throwing it out there for discussion of like, do we, do we think that like, I haven't done any sort of research to see like, what's the general consensus, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, is there criticism? Because I mean, I I know this is a criticism of like Whedon shows as well. Is mm-hmm. like for as much as like I mean, we've talked about him as a feminist and maybe some of his failings there. You know, there's also like a lot of criticism about his lack of diversity in in some of his mm-hmm. shows. Even though we get you know characters like Gunn, um, you know, mm-hmm. they're few and far between. Uh, fewer and far between than maybe they should be at least mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and and I mean so bringing up Latinos in space like for Whedon like one of the criticisms is hey you're in Southern California Southern California where are all the Latino people like right. you know that seems like maybe there'd be a higher concentration than we actually see which is you know none um, in Whedon right and, or and everybody Sunnydale. speaks or everybody speaks Chinese and there's no Asians and, you know, in, in space, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have any personal great insight. So maybe like it's wrong on me to even like throw it to you and be like, what do you think? 
Um, but yeah. yeah, just that from my perspective was just something I thought would at least be worth bringing up. Um, yeah. I mean, I kind of think of it, it, it maybe because it ran at, on a similar, like at the same time. Um, it reminds me a lot of Lost in that at the time, Lost felt extremely diverse. Like that felt like, you know, like my God, like they have people from everywhere on that plane and there's, you know, people speaking Korean and, you know, different colors and all these different things. And I think for the time it was groundbreaking. You look at it now. And it's like, all right, (laughs) like maybe we didn't have to pat ourselves on the back too much. Like by today's standards, it seems quite, you know, white America, you know, plain with a few, you know, like there are some, you know, actors of color and people from different nationalities, but not quite as much as it felt at the time. That's kind of how I think of BSG, like it... I mean, to me, like, just when you're mentioning Star Trek, I I look at the cast of BSG and it it seems more racially diverse to me than Star Trek did. But was it as groundbreaking in 2005 as Star Trek was in, you know, the 60s or whatever? Maybe not. Like, I think it's relative to the time that you're being made in, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm scanning through the cast. So, you know, almost Grace Park. Um, Tomo Pennicott. I think he's um, uh, not American Indian because he's Canadian, but. Um, like First uh, Nations. Yeah. Yes, First Nation. Thank you. That's the word I was searching for. Um, you know, Candace McClure, Alessandra Giuliani. Um, is uh, part Chinese. Um, Rekha Sharma, you know, like there's a lot of, you know, maybe not half, but maybe like a third of, you know, the main cast or the recurring cast, um, which, you know, I think by today's standards is leaves, you know, some room for improvement, obviously, but, you know, in the mid aughts, I think not a lot of other shows probably had that. Um, and, and I mean, in terms of your question about has it been criticized, I, I absolutely, I'm sure it has. Like the way it treated, you know, race politics, I don't think was always without fault. Um, but I think it, it seemed to try to go for a certain amount of colorblind casting um, and tried to not just have everybody be the same. Um, and like in that bit about Guillermo Adama, I think it's hard for, you know, white people to relate to the story he tells about the kid who saw him and said like, mommy we're like we're in space like we're in the future like isn't this awesome like yeah I definitely Mm -hmm. I understand the resistance some people have to the over-reliance on like relatability and storytelling um like I think we should be able to 
part of the joy of storytelling is to find uh, compelling things about people who are not like us and to, you know, expand your horizons to being compelled by all different types of people and people that are nothing like you and have nothing to do with you. But on the other hand, I've heard too many stories like that to discount the value of representation. Like too many stories from people saying, I simply did not see anybody like me on a, on a movie screen until I was a certain age and like the power of finally seeing that to kind of feel like if I don't think that's important, then that's probably my white privilege, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, because I never lacked for that. So how would I know what it feels like to see that for the first time? So right. It is cool that, you know, they cast people in these, not just major roles, but like the lead role, you know? Um, and it didn't just become like the white captain and all of his diverse sidekicks, like, you know? But yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Like maybe... Maybe it's not quite as, you know, progressive as it might first appear. Like, I don't yeah, know. I'm I, tossing it back to you. And I, so I think, I think you're right that there's a time element to it, uh, uh, era in which it is made. Um, I think when I was thinking of of like, so I like for one, I, I didn't know Pamela Pennegat, um had that sort of First Nations history, so um, that's cool. Like that he's not someone I would have pegged as being included in sort of the the diverse cast. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't, I honestly didn't have an answer, like, or, or whatever. I guess for me, what I was thinking was like, it feel like from a percentage basis of like people in the crew of like the Galactica versus like people in the crew of like, you know, who were like on the bridge of the original Star Trek, like percentage wise, it seemed different, but like, I mean, you made a strong case for that. Maybe that's not as different um so maybe maybe that's whatever um and what so i mean the other interesting thing is that i've actually heard that so the newest star trek uh discovery which is mm -hmm. like on now and i'm i'm not a star trek fan so this is also like i'm coming at this just from like hearsay and what little i've seen um yeah. um is definitely being created with a view to diversity. And I've seen that uh, it actually has itself is owing some debts to BSG in that way. So, you know, maybe this is a different version of it's all happening before and it's all happening again, but maybe, maybe even that is sort of a way to not correct, but like build upon mm -hmm. like, 
maybe if, if BSG had some progress, but like maybe could have made more, like maybe mm -hmm. that's where Star Trek Discovery comes in and says, okay, well, BSG did like maybe okay in this area a little bit, but, but we're going to explicitly try to do even better. And yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think like we've talked about earlier in this episode, again, you know, where sort of the value of, like the Adama and Roslyn contingent is always to like bring people together rather than sunder them, you know, uh, which is where, you know, like Baltar and, and Zarek at various times are, you know, they're, they're more in the di divisive camp than the, you know, uh, cohesive mm -hmm. camp, I guess. Um, I feel like that's very much, like a consistent thing with Star Trek throughout is that it's more it, like it's more about diplomatic missions and bringing mm -hmm. cultures and races together under a federation, you know, rather than, um, I mean, there's certainly the fun explosions and, you know, fights and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But that's like, in the name of like the ultimate goal being of like, let's all get along and build like a intergalactic society and like all of that kind of stuff, yeah. which from what I understand was like Gene Roddenberry's like original like vision mm -hmm. um, for, for the show and, and, or at least the shows that he oversaw and the, the films and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so like, yeah, maybe maybe it, maybe there's an aspect there of like, for its time, it it did okay, and and maybe we shouldn't look too harshly with it, or look too harshly on it with, uh, our sort of more modern progressive woke eyes, um. As much as that might apply to me or not, um. But anyway, just or or yeah, or realize that. It's never, I don't think there's ever going to be a finished end date. Like, it's like, okay, like, I think these sorts of issues are always going to be, you know, relevant, you know, to, well, like, I, I don't, I don't imagine in our lifetime that we're going to see the end perfection of representation in stories, you know, like, there's, sure. and so sure. it's, it's about kind of like, okay, don't be too hard on our past selves, but also don't think that now we have it all figured out because, you know, they thought they had it figured out 50 years ago and 15 years ago. And, you know, like there's no kind of, I just think it's kind of naive to imagine that you're ever going to get it completely right. Um, but that, But that's incentive to keep trying to do better, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so the one other thing I kind of wanted to bring up was like the, you know, gender diversity, um, both kind of having, you know, we, again, we can talk about how truly successful the show was of having, you know, female characters, you know, and male characters in non-traditional roles. Um, but also the gender flipping, um, because we are about to get back to Doctor Who, where um, <laughs> there's a major gender flip that's a coming over the horizon. So, like, 
I don't, I don't think anybody would claim that this was the first gender flip in history. Like I'm sure there are many other examples of this that we could identify in precedents or whatever, but it has to be one of the more prominent examples of saying, a demonstrating how you how successfully you can take a male character and reconceptualize and not even see this is what I like at some point in again one of the panels they kind of said like what's exciting is changing Starbuck to a woman but changing nothing else you know like it's still Starbuck is still a hard kind of, you know, drinker, card player, gets into a fist fight scrap, mouths off to the authorities, sleeps around, you know, like this is all stuff that old Starbuck did that new Starbuck continues to do just happens to be a woman. It's like he, mm. they don't necessarily soften her, you know, um, so, you know, I think that's a good role model for something like The Doctor of just because you cast a woman doesn't mean you have to go feeling like, all right, now how do we change the character? Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe you don't have to. Maybe just the simple casting enough does that for you without you having to go in and, you know, yeah. fiddle with it. Yeah, I, so it's hard to um, hard to talk about without having seen that. But like, well, and I so going back to your question of like, you know, what other examples of like gender swapped things are maybe like it's hard just because like there aren't that many examples. I feel like of of that of this sort of like rebooted show mm -hmm. that like even has the opportunity to do that. But like as far as like roles that maybe were originally written. So like mm -hmm. um, Ripley in Alien uh, comes mm -hmm. to mind. That role was originally written for a man. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, which we can talk about in our upcoming uh, Mythgard Movie Club discussion on that. Uh, whenever, There's a plug. When, whenever that happens, um, you can look it up on the interweb. Um, uh, so just like that, that's one that just comes to mind of like where it's not, necessarily something uh that was like a reboot or anything but but is like obviously a sort of classic sci-fi you know written for a man but eventually mm -hmm. became uh, uh you know uh, a woman who does sort of all the things that maybe and, and especially for like the late 70s like definitely you know did all of the like the sort of fighting hero you know whatever kind of stuff that would be attributed to like a man right <laughs> you know in a male role which, right which is i think that's what lays the groundwork for the actual flip of a character is like first like the precedents are probably more examples like that where you have traditional male roles then being adapted to like, or changed before the, they're actually presented to, like, mm -hmm. you know, be a female character. And eventually you get this thing of, well, we're rebooting the show anyway. What if we just swap this this character's 
gender and see what see what happens. Right. Um, and not you're not changing the lines, you're not changing what they do. Right. Because it's a different gender. You're just saying, well, now this is a woman doing these things. Yeah. Um right. right. I mean, maybe this is uh another another example actually just came to mind is um uh Judy Dench in in the Bond films. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, M uh taking over that, you know, high whatever, you know, the um the British agency there is that Bond works for. But uh, you know, taking over that role as as you know, the highest member of that Mm-hmm. organization or agency or whatever you want to call it um, yeah yeah well and there i don't know how far back this goes i'd be curious to know what was the first example but um you know they do gender swapped versions of shakespeare plays where it's like sure you know, and, and in an, an all-female hamlet or you know well um, i mean wasn't even like the original shows of shakespeare was like guys playing women's roles absolutely Um, so that's in there too of you have men and women playing you know or mostly men playing each other's parts you know and so already the roles of who plays what and what characteristics you're allowed to play are confused even that far back so yeah. yeah so yeah i mean i definitely um at least a few examples there and i'm sure given more research time we could find more but um yeah i mean i i i didn't see you know i saw the i saw the reimagined series you know before i saw the original ones and like going that way at least it seems very odd to see starbuck as a man um (laughs) you know just because katie sackoff does just such a great job of portraying the character Mm -hmm. um yeah i i don't i mean i'm just i i know obviously because we we know that there are people who will complain about anything like there were obviously people who complained mm-hmm. about you know starbuck being a woman but it like it's it's very hard for me coming at it from a uh initial standpoint of seeing her portrayal to to see anyone else in that role right right. um so yeah yeah Yeah. and and i'm sure she has her detractors even still but like when you see lists of the greatest characters you know from bsg or just like you know lists of great tv characters you'll see starbuck on there um and i think that's a testament to how well that this can work um so yeah I mean, I'll be very interested to see that going forward um, with Doctor Who and other things. I think this is probably going to become more common. Um, and I think BSG was a really important kind of turning point. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I like this how do we close the discussion like I don't have any big like series ending statements to make here it's like um well I don't want this to spin too far into 
new discussions, but maybe to kind of wrap it up, I did have a question of, since this was a show that we had both seen before and revisited, mm -hmm. um, overall, in a nutshell, I guess, did your impression of it change at all? Did it, you know, do you look at it differently now? Did, you know, do you have a different sense of where the show kind of falls in your estimation or did it merely confirm, you know, the impressions that you had from the first time that you watched it? Yeah. I mean, I don't think actually my opinion of it changed that much and, and my thoughts about it. Um, still not a fan of the, fast forward into the present at the very end. Um, but I also don't think that that ruins like the entire series, like some people mm -hmm. have said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I still can appreciate it for what it is with like the, you know, so like um, I'm doing like my annual rewatch of Friends, you know, which I tend to have on in the background while I'm like washing dishes or, or whatever. Um, and I just came upon the episode uh, yesterday or the day before of where Phoebe um, finds out how old Yeller ends and then like realizes that like her mother like always stopped the all the movies like before the sad endings yeah. or whatever. Um, so like I feel like that 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 should be like how I will watch unless I unless I unless we do some sort of like in depth necessary discussion where i absolutely have to watch the ending again i feel like that's where, like i'm just gonna end it with like everyone happy on earth and like getting ready to get it on with the neanderthals like that's a happy <laughs> that's a happy ending for me and we're just gonna like not go five hundred thousand years into the future or anything. that's funny um oh just thought of another one uh gender swap thing that is uh elementary with, mm, yeah yeah uh this sherlock um yep thing anyway sorry yeah yeah just popped into my head had to get it out um so back to what you were saying like i so as far as the series like i i really enjoyed the series i'm actually doing this sort of in-depth thing i mean there were a few things that irritated me more in some aspects like james almost is overacting edward james mm -hmm. almost is overacting a bit at times mm -hmm. Um, and he's not the only one. Um, but like the things were like, like I got irritated with the characters, like, why don't you just do this or whatever? Like, I feel like a lot of that's like just part of the story where it's like, you're reacting to like the characters themselves. It's not mm -hmm. like, because it's a bad story or, or whatever, like, mm -hmm. um, definitely, you know, enjoyed looking at the things I think some of the episodes that I I mean I I it's always hard for me to remember what exactly happens in which episode so maybe it's more accurate to say some of the storylines that I remembered mm -hmm. I like I enjoyed going back and being able to see it and, I, and I'm really kind of surprised and impressed maybe as to how well it all holds up with that mm -hmm. sort of in-depth scrutiny and and the slower viewing for me because i i did sort of binge it all until like the last the last half of the last season right. that i saw live as it was airing 
Right. Um, so you could have just completely glossed over it and then yeah. gone back and realized, oh, this doesn't really work. But I didn't realize because I just sort of blasted through it all. Right. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. So that would be without getting into another like 20 minute discussion on it. Like that would be my overall impression that that I really actually did like it again. And I think it holds up well for what it is. Um, and I will skip the last five minutes next time. I <laughs> Fair enough. How about, Fair how about you? Um, I think kind of similar. Um, yeah, I don't think it really changed in a major way. My overall, like, you know, I mean, I, I watched it much more recently than you did. So maybe it was inevitable that my opinion would be a little closer to, you know, or, or would be close to what I originally thought. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like there are some minor things where I either liked it better or worse, depending on the situation after looking at it with the scrutiny, you know, like, um, let me think of an example. Like there are some aspects of the finale that I I'm intrigued by that I never caught before. Like, you know, I think what you pointed out about Hera dying as a young woman, you know, um, or some of the suggestions that they're going to just devolve into this kind of prehistoric state and forget everything like it, that, and that adds a, a kind of bleak layer to the finale that literally did not occur to me on the first you know, even though I knew the, oh, okay, this is all going to happen again, part of it, but the way that that would immediately affect the characters that we actually knew, that was, you know, new to me. And I think that made the finale a bit more complicated than I had taken it to be. Um, and then there are some things like, um, for as much as I really enjoy the character, I was really frustrated with Ty on this viewing. I oh, think sure. the, and not just frustrated in a, like he's annoying and frustrating, but like, he's annoying. I'm annoyed. He was, I think, um, inconsistently written yeah, yeah, yeah. throughout the series in a way that I found a bit frustrating because Mostly because everyone tells you how consistent he is, you know, and like, like, oh, with Ty, you always know where you stand and his loyalty. And it's like, it's complete nonsense. He is all over the place. Um, so as much as I really enjoy Michael Hogan's performance, that looking at it that closely to me took away some of my appreciation for, you know, how well crafted the character is um but i think those are fairly minor like overall i think my opinion of the show and what the bits that i liked and the bits that i didn't like remained pretty much the same um it's just more fun to kind of go through with a fine tooth comb and figure out why like why do you like this or why does this work or why is this particular episode like only half baked or whatever? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. Cool. Well, 
Um, with that said, I guess like it, it's kind of weird. Like like we said, we never really closed the series. And well, we're not. We still haven't because we're going right. to talk about the plan. <laughs> but but like that's not the series. That's like a posting. That's like oh yeah wait yeah wait yeah epilogue well, wait. One more. Epilogue, that's a prequel. Wait, wait. Remember that plan that we talked about in every episode? Maybe we should address that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that said, we're kind of closing a series here. So um, I guess we brush our hands and, and move on. And with that, so we will be back next week talking about the plan. Um, but by to BSG as as a series and and as a uh, discussion topic, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, kind of sad. So say we all. So say we all. <laughs> on that note. See you next time.